And we are recording. Ricky <clears throat> Burand. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dylan and Joe podcast. I'm Dylan. This is Joe. And today we're going to take a step back to the year 1971, a time when you could be on an airplane and still order seven up and smoke a rally cigarette. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. So That's perfect. Joe, Joe, do they still? Yes. Uh, Joe, did, do they still sell rally cigarettes? I don't think I've seen those. I haven't seen them uh, in my lifetime, so I'd imagine they probably went out of business with Benson and Hedges and the, all the other uh, sorry sacks that went by the wayside as people got older, I'm sure. That's yeah, true, but they still, they still make palm oils, last I checked. I still see those, those there, and those are, those are on the cusp of being extinct, but they're definitely still at every convenience store. Yeah, it's like yeah. how they sell Moxie, but I'm sure that their stock price isn't much as large as Coca-Cola or Pepsi. Like People still drink it, but you got to make a new audience every now and then. And licorice flavored cola is not really true. They came back hardcore maybe a few years ago, like four or five years ago, Moxie did. And uh, I got into them and I hated it when I was a kid and I like it now. And the main ingredients, gentian, gentian root. You, you like it now. Of course you do. You like disgusting flavored sodas. <laughs> <laughs> you would like Moxie. Disgusting. Disgusting. So, <laughs> but yeah, right, so, guys, so we're, we're not going to tell you the secret about who we're talking about today yet, but we're going to, we're going to share it in a few minutes. We're going to keep 71 lead up a couple of secrets into 1971. So you know what? Actually, we're going to go right into it. So Joe, what are we going to talk about first? Well, first of all, we're recording this on the day before Thanksgiving. It won't mm -hmm. come out the day before Thanksgiving, but this is when we're recording it. And unbeknownst to us, when looking at the subject, we had already decided on it. The events of what we're talking, talking about today actually happened the day before Thanksgiving in 1971. That's a little piece of serendipity that happened to us. So what we're going to be talking about happened the day before Thanksgiving. What do you think about for Thanksgiving? Obviously, you're thinking about, you know, getting turkey in your belly, meeting with the family, big parties. But the biggest thing people think about, for the most part, when you're getting places is travel. The day before Thanksgiving is the most populated air travel day of the year, besides maybe Christmas Eve. I mean, it is the most flights booked, the most hotels booked. People are trying to get to the party the next day, whether it's the day before or the day after. It is a super, super popular time for travel. And our story has to do with air travel today, which was not as popular in 1971 as it is now, but big time for moving around the world. And specifically not as popular, meaning that if you're on a 727-100 on a Northwest Orient flight, that seat that can, according to Wikipedia, seat about 160 people. Um, sure. This particular flight that went, went from uh, Seattle to Portland, right? The first flight? Uh, Portland, Portland to Seattle, yeah. Portland to Seattle, sorry, I got confused. Portland, yeah, Seattle um, had flight. what, 67 passengers on it? Wasn't full. It was just wasn't full. common back in the 70s, but now you, you never find a flight that's not full. Now, even with you know what's going on in the world today, they still pack them. And, and even on Spirit Airlines' best days, if you sign up the rewards, you cannot get a flight for $20 more. <laughs> not that's not what happened in 1971. We got a $20 flight. Uh, from uh, Portland to Seattle. And, uh, and we're gonna start off with, who is this guy we're gonna talk about and why do we care? Who are we talking about today, Today, we're gonna talk about D.B. Cooper. D. And D. for those of you who are unfamiliar with D.B. Cooper, he is a mysterious man who was in his mid forties at a time uh, when, 
when specifically at a time that was also known as the golden age of skyjackings. And yeah. the term, I believe the term skyjacking uh, was really it's made popular in that golden age. It's what? not when you go to the bathroom during the flight to relieve. <laughs> it's actually the combination of hijacking in the sky, which is in the sky. Yep. The plane. Yeah. So let's, let's clear exactly. that up right Yep. And this was also a time when uh, you could smoke eight cigarettes on a, on a flight. You could You're encouraged to. just be drinking. You could bring on a backpack, a suitcase, whatever the hell you want on an airplane. And, uh, and you're a bad skyjacking. None of our business here. Whatever's in that bag, that's on you. Whether it's a pound of cocaine, whether it's a 12 inch blade, or whether it's a rifle, as long as it's in the bag, not our problem. No problem. Our yep. And they don't even care who you are. Just write your name on the form. Just, just write it down. <laughs> That's it. This is at a time in air travel where there not only was no metal detectors going into the terminal, there's not even an ID needed. So as long as you say that's your name, your boarding pass will be printed up with your name. Whether your name's, you know, Joe Dillon or Oliver Closeoff or Dan Cooper, no matter what your or, name is, it comes up as the name you say. No yep, ID necessary. It, no ID necessary. And uh, just to reiterate those, uh, some points that he made if you guys didn't hear clearly or dan cooper and <laughs> that is what we're talking about today and who is dan cooper he's also known as db cooper um and that's what we're going to talk about so so joe um how many so people did the fbi so famous i mean obviously we brought the idea of skyjacking why don't you yeah. give me a, a, the quickest version you can tell me if you don't mind of who D.B. Cooper is and why people care about him because, you know, skyjacking may have been the heyday during the uh, late 60s to early 70s, but why is this particular person, you know, so famous? Many of these people who had hijacked airplanes were caught. In fact, all of them had been caught afterwards besides the person we're talking about today. What happened yep. to this person? And, and on top of that, to this day in 2020, all of them have been caught still. This is the only case of skyjacking that remains unsolved. Um, so who is D.B. Cooper? Um, he wrote on his uh, boarding pass, Dan Cooper, and he was a, uh, a man in his 40s who, um, who looked like, uh, on a description, uh, a very basic looking guy from like, everybody loves Raymond, like a mix between Ray Romano and his brother, the cop, only short. Yeah, five really. eight. yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. Like Five eight. And Ray Romano are together, including if you added their voices together too. They said he had a pretty deep voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Real, Five eight, hundred sixty. Yeah. Did you say calm Credit individual? Control. Yeah, definitely a calm guy. Um, and he's he he just dressed in. Uh, he had this uh, a, a mix between brown and red suit coat from the seventies, obviously. Sure. Um, uh, some black sunglasses, and he was known to smoke rally cigarettes. He ordered a Sprite in bourbon which is suspect. already suspect if you order that on a plane i don't care if it's 2020 you order a sprite in bourbon i got eyes on you the that's the real crime here <laughs> that's the real crime besides the sprite and bourbon. <laughs> it doesn't say if, i didn't get any details on if you mix them or not if you have a sprite I, bourbon. I don't know why I you would drink them like this so I, I heard i heard reports of him sipping bourbon so i hope that he never poured the sprite in there but still even the combination back and forth oh sorry the, no it wasn't sprite it was seven up that makes more sense. Seven and sevens, you know, you do that that way. Either yeah. way, though, I don't yeah. know if I would ever mix bourbon with a citrusy uh, soda. Uh, yeah, not my thing. 
Um, and he was a, uh, a calm. So back to D.B. Cooper, from what we know about him, the story about all the details we actually know uh, ended around uh, uh, like 530 on November 24th, 1971. So everything leads to that point said that he smoked cigarettes. He had this drink. Um, he knew according to the to the stewardesses, because at the time that's what they're called, um, he definitely knew his way around an airplane and around the skies and uh, clearly was most likely an experienced paratrooper of some sort. Yes, and um, he, he had a bomb on the plane. And he had a bomb. Or he a said, fake bomb. a bomb. We'll get into yep. that, sure. But yep. basically the guy, the guy said to the flight attendants and stewardesses at the time, he said, I have a bomb on the plane. I need to speak to somebody who's got a lot more authority than you do. And he was put through the long and short of this case that we're going to tear through today and give you guys all the different elements we know, the elements we don't know, and why the FBI hasn't solved it to this day, as far as we're concerned, is that this man got onto an airplane, passed a note, had a bag of a bomb that's never been proven whether it's actually explosive or not, and was able to procure himself $200,000 before leaping out of this airplane in the sky into history books. That's what we're going through today, the story of D.B. Cooper, the guy that they never have been, who never been charged with this crime. The only one, like you said, the only hijacker that's never been charged with the crime of hijacking. And it's a crazy story. So before uh, we get into too many details, we want to talk about air security for a few minutes. Um, yeah, how is this thing able to happen? How could this happen? Yeah. How could this happen? Uh, as expressed earlier by us, uh, it, air security wasn't really a thing back then. Mm-hmm. As mentioned, if there could be, you don't think of golden age uh, moments in history as a skyjacking golden age, but there was, um, I don't have the statistic in front of me, but there was at least 100 skyjackings between, um, what was that? In a four year period between 1968 and 72, there was was over, I think it was about 120 skyjackings. Can you imagine getting on a plane and knowing that you have a pretty good chance of being taken over by somebody? Wild. Exactly. Wild. Um, so since then, so I think the first thing that they did was they implemented air marshals, but the challenge yes. is you got to need, you need a lot of air marshals. So they might've had one every 300 flights. So your chances are pretty good. Yeah, air mattress, um, an air marshal, I also an air mattress. That's pretty good to slip on. Air an air marshal, just for people who aren't willing to understand it, it's people who are um, federal agents who are dressed in plain clothes, who are trained to stop hijackings and anyone doing things untoward on a plane but they're supposed to be more of the threat of them being there. Obviously you can't man every plane with a trained officer of the law. Mm. It'd be prohibitively expensive to do it. And it would be unnecessary because it rarely ever happens. It's more the idea that these people are going to be on flights that you don't know they're on. And the, the fear of that happening is supposed to be suppressing the idea of wanting to do it. Almost like there could be a cop around every corner. So don't commit any crimes because you could always, you never know what it's going to be the day that the air marshal is sitting right next to you. They're not also supposed to disclose to you that they're an air marshal, but sometimes you get a couple of drinks in you, give them a couple of nudges. <laughs> you can usually sometimes you can tell because you're on a flight. Uh, sometimes <laughs> you can tell, yeah, exactly. Sometimes you can tell because you're sitting there all comfortably in the middle row, whatever it is, and you look over there and looks, there's a guy who looks like a cop. <laughs> yeah, it's never the guy <laughs> drooling on his peanut bag yeah. asleep with the pillow. It's usually the guy with the, with the buzz cut who's sitting at attention in the triangle pose for the half of the flight. Dead yeah, exactly. Away. And he's barely got any, he might have like a little briefcase with him or something like a laptop bag and like that, 
for a backpack and that's it <laughs> on a four hour flight. And you're like, hmm, where's this it's guy going? Weird to look out. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, so the whole point is back then they didn't really have any of that. There wasn't a whole no. lot of that going on. So it was like a bus, um, a bus trip. You never put a cop on a bus unless you're in a school uh, nowadays, but you never, you never would have an idea. We need a, a federal agent on every bus ride, any of your Greyhound or Peter Pan bus around America. Back then, although flights were seen as more of a, you know, a formal event where you're going to dress up and sit down and look nice, it was still pretty the same way as a bus trip was where you wouldn't think that you'd be threatened um, by a hijacking or you would need a federal agent on it. It was also before, which nowadays we can't even understand this idea. People never thought of the idea generally that people would use um, a passenger flight as a weapon, which now we're all too well aware of how that can be done. And it's pretty simply understood for us now. But in 1971, the idea of someone using a passenger flight as a weapon, it just wasn't uh, part of the site. It just wasn't very popular. So people didn't uh, act accordingly until it happened over a hundred times. Yeah, exactly. And there was a lot of money being taken. And a fun fact too about DB Cooper is the airlines had a policy in place for these type of things. So I think that they didn't pay. So the DB Cooper heist, um, we'll get into a second, but he requested $200,000 uh, mm -hmm. in 1971, which is about $1.2 million in today's day. And the insurance company covers uh, like 90% of that. So the airline owed like 10 or 20 grand while the uh, i'm sure they were glad to pay either way just just for the publicity whether or not it's going to go wrong or right you don't want to be the time that your airline exploded because you wouldn't pay for the lives of 66 people <laughs> yeah exactly That's yeah bad. you don't want to be no northwest orient i don't think want to be known Probably as that worse. yeah even if your insurance yep. doesn't cover it which it, they did like you said it's you still want to pay the money it's it's better yeah. off it's better off and yeah. and we'll get into it so since there's a lot of details that are about the money, about the insurance, about mm -hmm. other happenings at Boeing and Northwest Orient um, that are all tied into this. So, so let's get started on a detailed account of this heist and what exactly happened. So uh, I'll lead it that. off just because we mentioned that he walked in um, to, the, uh, to the ticket counter uh, at mm -hmm. Northwest Orient in, um, in Portland Order at PDX. Uh, yes. And he asked some details about uh, flight 305 um, going from. It was scheduled to leave at 2.50 p.m. from Portland, Oregon, bound for Seattle. And that's the day before Thanksgiving, like we said, 1971, which happened to be November 24th that year. Exactly. And one of the things that he said to the, 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 the woman at the ticket counter is, is that a 727? And she said, yes, it is. He said, OK, here's 20 bucks. I'll take the flight. And depending on who D.B. Cooper is, but uh, the 727 was, I don't know if this is, I've heard multiple different things and I didn't uh, find anything to say it wasn't, um, but let's just say to be safe, the 727 mm -hmm. was one of the only airplanes at the time that had a, uh, uh, that had aft entrance, yeah, an aft staircase. Um, mm -hmm. So that means that just like a, a military cargo plane, the, the, uh, below the tail, the back comes down so you can walk in through the back, yeah. which is very so important if you want to jump time, out of an airplane. Yes. Imagine the time where there's no jetway and there's no safety procedures for locking up the fuselage yeah. doors. People would walk onto the tarmac and up the stairs as if you were getting on a bus. Like we said, you just walk right on there, get up the stairs, and they would close the stair up into the fuselage after the, the plane was, before the plane was taken off, rather, which yeah, is a big part of how you can make an escape if you are D.B. Cooper, which we will see coming up, of course. Exactly, because on a, on a modern flight, 
if you jump out of uh, any of those doors, depending on the airplane, you might hit the wing, you might hit an engine, you might hit the tail. Uh, you know, right. I don't really know. It's definitely a lot easier to go out from the back and just fall down. Yeah, I, um, I also imagine there's a lot of safety procedures about being able to open up those doors mid-flight, and it has to be oh, a absolutely. emergency in order to do that. You wouldn't just be able to hit a button that opens the door up in today's flights, no matter how much you're qualified. <laughs> Got a way. couple drinks and you think it's the toilet button and you press it and the whole back starts going down like this. <laughs> There's a backup after backup after backup of not sucking people out into the void of the uh, high atmosphere. You, you can't do that. Even if you don't have a staircase, you can't do it nowadays. And this is one of the reasons why, because of this story. Exactly. So he's got the flight. He boarded the flight. Uh, and he sat in seat, was it 18C, uh, which is near the back of the airplane. Mm -hmm. and I know it was miles seat near the back, yeah. Yeah, I think he had the whole road to himself, right? That makes sense. It's plane holds about 120 people, 66 people. You can get a whole road to yourself. <laughs> yeah, you get to pick the road yourself. So yeah. he sat back there, and then uh, not too long after takeoff, um, there was a. Uh, this is what we have uh, here. So it was only about 10 minutes after takeoff when he first handed over a note to the flight attendant at about 3 p.m. And, and on the note, he wrote, "I have a bomb." And he hands the note to the flight attendant. She takes it. And as was the procedure for a lot of flight attendants at the time in the late 60s, early 70s, she thought, here's another middle-aged businessman trying to hit on me. He probably gave mm -hmm. me his number, a little love note, whatever. She puts it in her pocket thinking, just another creep. I thought he was a nice guy. He seems reasonable, but now he's not me. It's all weird. <laughs> he walks down the aisle. It was only a few minutes later that he realized that she had no change in her emotions. That she, she pulled her aside and he says, you better read that note because I have a bomb. And that's when today starts sparking off because she reads the note. Doesn't need to at that point, but now it's on. Exactly. So that's the first start is that now you've got a flight attendant, which was, uh, we've got a head stewardess named Alice Hancock. She wasn't really involved too much. Then you have Tina McClough, uh, mm -hmm. or McClough, Tina McClough, um, and Florence Schaffner. And I believe Florence is the one that got the note, right? I think so. I'm not sure, but I do think so, yeah. Yep, yep. I believe it's Florence. So, so, yeah, yep, one of the uh, ones, she, he was dealing with most of the time. The person who got the note, uh, he was dealing with her most of all. But he was dealing with the whole flight staff throughout the flight. He wasn't just dealing with one person, but that was the person who got the note, I think, yeah. Exactly. So the first thing he did, um, so once she actually read the note, uh, D.B. Cooper did something smart. He took the note back. And then all the transmissions from him to the cockpit um, were done in their handwriting. And he probably did this because he knew uh, that that would be evidence. Once they have his handwriting, it's going to be a lot easier to figure out who this guy is. Yeah, the less so, they know about you, the better going forward. You don't, they don't need to hear your voice on the intercom. They don't need to mm -hmm. see your handwriting. As long as you can separate yourself more, um, it's, it's more difficult to identify you and then for, therefore find you afterwards, which as we go on with the story, is a huge part of why um, the case is still cold to this day. Exactly, because he did a lot of things right. Um, so one of the things that, that so Florence seems like she had, uh, let's say, balls of steel. She sat down next to D.B. Cooper and started talking to him. And she did- This point, like he has a bomb. <laughs> so I, I'd be nerve wracked to begin with, even to be near this guy, saying that he has a bomb in his briefcase or an attache case that he has. Uh, exactly. There's so many things that, um, besides blowing up, you have to deal with uh, frantic passengers. You have to, you know, figure out all sorts. There's so many questions that can be running through your mind at the time your where job just air travel is harder. 
immediately. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, she asked to see it. Um, uh, he had his suitcase because he just said that. And, she, and, and uh, this is also a, a good clue, too. Um, he opened up the suitcase and she said she saw a bunch of red, uh, red dynamite sticks. Yeah, um, red cylinders. We, we, we think they might be dynamite sticks, but he obviously he, he wanted to look that way, well, whether or not dynamite or not. Yeah, exactly. And if you're if, so here's my thing is if you're really like anxious about that type of thing, it's, it's very hard to recall memories. Um, dynamite is brown. Uh, flares are red. So he could have just made a fake bomb and he had no intentions of blowing up the airplane, probably more likely than not. Are you saying that he didn't have a, a bundle of red sticks with a big clock on him that says TNT <laughs> from the cartoons? I think that, yeah, I think that maybe he, uh, he was watching too many cartoons if that's what he had. Um, hey, well, lucky for him, everyone else was too, because they were fully believing this is a bomb. And even if it's not a bomb in that moment, is your logical brain really thinking like, wait a minute, what color is dynamite really? I mean, you're in panic mode, no matter what the guy says. Do you feel you. like calling his bluff at that point? Of course, you don't want to call his bluff. Yeah, Even exactly. if he had, hey, if he uh, had those uh, black spheres with a fuse coming out of it, you're going to say, hey, it's a bomb. I mean, I, I'm in no position to take this not seriously now. There's lives at risk, including my own. Yeah. So. Generally, you could have a plastic uh, molded uh, apple that's this big yeah. and it's green with some yeah, wires out of it. And you go, it's a bomb. You go, yep, that looks like one to me, so... Of course, we're not going to question that. So, um, so, so at this point, uh, the, the notes he he did some transmissions back and forth to the cockpit because um, they were able mm -hmm. to talk to um, air traffic control and meet his demands. Right. Um, he demanded that they land in Seattle. Yes. Refuel. Uh, and he wants two hundred thousand dollars by five p.m. in cash, which is about an hour's notice for somebody to get to get. 1.2 million dollars in today's day money, in cash yeah. in 20s um refuel the airplane um and four parachutes specifically right. at first he didn't say what kind of parachutes he wanted but he wanted two on the front two on the back right. uh and um the reason i don't know if you picked up on this but the reason he wanted two sets of parachutes is um he's clearly a smart guy he knew that he might um this is this is before you go on this is a, a important point towards how sure. who this person is is that we're going to find as we go on in the story that, that this was not a spur of the moment idea this person had meticulously planned this and knew things that the average person wouldn't know even people who are just thinking about hijacking a plane might not thought of which is ordering more parachutes than you need not just for yourself but for the idea that you might bring hostages with you therefore you can't mm -hmm. give him the parachute you're doing you're doing the work for him now if you give him a fake parachute he jumps out of the plane to his death Problem solved, right? At this point, this guy is a hijacker. He's, he has hostages, no big deal. But if he has a faulty parachute, you can't give him a faulty parachute because he could be taking innocent yeah. civilians with him. And he's guaranteeing that those parachutes are going to work because people's lives are at risk besides his own. Just a smart move. Smart move, exactly. Well, CEO, uh, Donald Irop, he, he, like you said, he, he agrees to this. He says, give him the money. We'll give him the parachutes. Let's get this done in under an hour, like you were saying. Yep. Exactly. And uh, one of the things came back that the, the parachutes are coming from the, the closest military base um, uh, to the Seattle airport. And right. he then replied that that's not a good idea. I need uh, skydiving parachutes. Yeah, um, he doesn't want military parachutes. Why yeah, does he want military parachutes still? That's a great question, Joe. Uh, he doesn't want military parachutes because they, uh, when, the, when the chute opens, you have no control of where you go. As you're coming close to the earth, right? You don't have control over when you're going to pull the ripcord. They're made to go off and then you can't control where you land, right? 
I'm not 100% sure. Uh, so depending on the, like what source I listen to for my information, and me and Joe got a lot of information. <laughs> so well, we both have well. learned how much we know about this, how much we can learn about this in a few days, and yeah, how much we well, still don't know about this. It's and crazy. what we're going to do for the most part is we're not going to talk to each other about it beforehand. So we're learning this in real time so that we can have a real conversation about yeah, it. Yeah, and syncing it up. It's the fun of it. So, um, so. I do not know if at the time the military parachutes, you could free fall and then open them. I don't know. Um, when you see pictures or videos of like troops um, and their parachutes deploying, a lot of times they're on a, a core, it's like a, a carabiner that goes on a line. So when they jump out of the back of an airplane, it's on the line. And once that line hits a, hits a certain stop, it That's pulls it out for you. So you don't have to pull anything if you're some 18 year old kid in the army. Um, right. But I don't know how that would work on a 727 unless he clipped it onto something. Right, which, yeah, you wouldn't think. Be so he that. may, it's still, but the, but the bottom line is you're not gonna have the ones like James Bond where you can pull and right. turn and you that want, stuff. You it's gonna to be a circular top yeah. that's supposed to fall, uh, fall down as uh, linear as possible. Mm. So he requested um, uh, parachutes uh, be brought from, um, this has a lot to do with some of the suspects too. Um, the parachutes, were to be brought from the Issaquah Skyport, um, which is the place that one of the suspects actually worked at. Um, and back as, not like today, Issaquah, uh, skydiving wasn't really like the biggest, coolest thing ever yet. No one, not a lot of people did it. Um, I'd say almost nobody did skydiving back in the early 70s. It's very rare. People who are real daredevils and a lot of times people who are really engrossed in aviation and that whole world, you wouldn't just go skydiving for your bachelorette party. You were someone who loved the idea of coming out of planes. Yeah. And you probably did it before you were probably trained in the military. Right. Exactly. A lot of skydiving yeah. instructors at the time, especially were former military paratroopers and people who had been trained by the military to do just that. Exactly. So... Um, so from there, um, he, okay, so I didn't take a lot of notes on this. So Joe, um, from what I know, they land in Seattle, um, waited on the airport, <laughs> waited on the, basically uh, on the top. As far away as you could, right? And they wanted just one person to come out and bring it and they're going to have one exactly. flight attendant go out, right? Yep. And, and he did something else smart. Had no intention of coming out of the plane to receive these items. Like I said, he wanted to keep himself anonymous as he could and keep control of the situation, which means sending one of the flight attendants to take it for you and you watch over the thing and make sure no funny business, which was also part of the note. No funny exactly. business. Exactly, no funny business. And specifically, there's gonna be snipers and he knew that. So another of thing course. he had them do is like, it's, it's great when you have these demands. What? They wanna kill him immediately. I, let's not yes. just post by that. Of course, everyone who's a hijacker is thinking the, the main thing they want to do to end this is murder me right now. And yeah. they have every application to do so. So if you're ever out for a moment, they're going to kill you and end this whole thing as fast as they can. You only have power as soon as they can't kill you. They're not worried about defending your life at this point. You've already given it up. No. Nope. You yeah, your freedoms are really, really gone at this point. Yeah, can you imagine that call? It's like, uh, <laughs> Tower, this is flight 305. We've got a hijacker. He wants to land in Seattle. Uh, yeah. and keep the police on the phone. Hi, it's the police captain here. Yep, we can hijack flight. Okay, cool. Park here and keep the windows open and let him out the back. <laughs> We're going to kill him immediately. <laughs> I know exactly what to do. Of course, yeah. That would, so yeah, guy, he wants money, no problem. Tell him it's there. We're going to shoot him. 
Yeah, tell them we have a hundred billion dollars in a suitcase. Yeah, we'll double it. We'll double it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hey guys. Uh, yeah. Get get four snipers on the tarmac right now and just get ready to shoot the guy in the suit, <laughs> please. You want a different parachute? Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Whatever kind you want. We have a hundred parachutes ready for you. Don't worry about it. Just yeah. The not a want. problem. Yep. We'll get him. He's gonna bomb. Great. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so anyway, so when he landed, he knew this. He made all the passengers shut at that point. They knew there was a skyjacking, um, most likely. They did keep it a secret for a while, but shut their window shades. Um, and then they sent yep. Tina Tina McLeod, the stewardess, out um, to like a secret car that pulled up. Yep. Containing the, and, the briefcase of the money or the bag. It wasn't a briefcase. I think it was a bag, right? Uh, it was not what he requested. He requested a knapsack and it was like um, something without handles, like a shitty fucking bag like that has bag. no handles yeah yeah and he's like well you didn't say yeah they're trying to make it as hard as possible for him to pull this off which of exactly course, and at this point it's too late to right you're trying to accommodate all their demands without giving up anything you're trying to give them just enough to keep them on the line try to save people's lives and not lean into their demands too much so that'd be a good example of i want an aspect here's your money but it's in a paper bag better hope you have a good grip strength because jumping out yep. of the airplane would be tough Exactly. So yeah, try jumping out of an airplane, uh, going about 200 miles an hour, holding onto a, a bag without handles try on it. Bag out of a window on the highway and see how how difficult Good luck. that is. Yeah. 60 it, mile an hour winds, and that'll come up later too. How fast wind speed is coming out of a 727. Exactly. It's harder than so, uh, a paper bag. Sorry, go ahead. Yep. So he gets the bag. So Tina yeah, gets the it's bag. Hard. What? So Tina receives the bag of money as well as the parachutes, right? Four parachutes, bag of money, and what she did, which uh, she gets a lot of credit for this, is she traded herself and all that stuff for the passengers. Um, right. okay. So she said, I'll get, on, I'll, get, I'll get on board if all the passengers can come off. So they let the passengers off, and then she went back on, and they took off. Yeah, that's smart and noble. Crazy. I, mean, I, me. I wouldn't I do that. Say, I'd I would like, not do that. Okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> Fuck this guy. Yeah, I did, I did my part. You can't yeah, I did me. my part. Think of my high heels down the tarmac as fast as I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, so, you know, um, as to the whole idea of, of the mystique behind this guy, because we didn't really mention it earlier by the idea of him, but he's he's almost revered as a sort of Robin Hood type figure because of the way that he handled it. I mean, a lot of the flight attendants said he couldn't have been a nicer guy. He looked cool as a cucumber the entire time in the flight, mm -hmm. just sipping his bourbon, smoking a cigarette, and hanging out. And although I'm sure the entire flight crew would would have loved for this never to happen to them. And what a horrific event to go through and terrifying to happen to you. They said that by all accounts, this guy was just, just seemed normal and was kind. He even offered to pay the flight attendants for their, for the drinks he was buying as if he was a regular customer. And at one really? point when he got the bag of money, he was talking to the flight attendant and she said, ah, that's a lot of money. I wish I could get some. He offered her one of the bundles of cash. He <laughs> <laughs> can't take that from you. I mean, Obviously, this is a, it's a strange thing to do, and this guy is a bad guy, but it's part of his mystique is the idea that he wasn't harming people intentionally, and even the idea that he'd give up all those hostages to let her on board. What he wants is the money and to get out of there. He doesn't need to put people's lives at risk beyond the fact that he uses that as a tool of power to get what he wants in this scenario. I just thought that was an interesting fact about him. Because the FBI went on to say that he was a drunk and he was an angry, abusive man, and all the flight crew said that even though they weren't a fan of the guy, that they really couldn't lie and say that he was acting like that because he was acting like a completely civil um, hijacker as far as that. <laughs> exactly. 
civil, I'm, nice, calm guy. And, nice, and, calm, uh, calm. and what do you think? It probably takes some, some hardcore, uh, maybe military experience in Vietnam to really get that cool level headedness and high pressure, high stress situations. Unlike, I'm, unlike today's typical bank robber, um, which I think was best portrayed by no other than Argo, Ryan Gosling in, yeah. uh, <laughs> in a place behind the pines, that one, right? What, what, why is that Argo? Is he an Argo? Ryan Gosling. He's an Argo? It's a No, Argo. <laughs> Ryan Gosling. Argo. Oh, oh, I was so confused. I thought, I thought you said Fargo. Or no, no, no. Argo, like <laughs> Ryan is the R, and then Gosling is, is the go. <laughs> I get it now. I get it now. I don't know why you remember? know that, but I appreciate you explaining it to me. I'm not going to do it right now because I don't think I can make my voice screech that much. But he paints his motorcycle black and he jumps up on top of um, the bank tellers with a gun in her face like this. And he goes, give me that fucking money. And he screams and his voice cracks. And it's like, that looks yeah, yeah. that looks a lot more like how that would go down as opposed to like, if someone's like, just got to get it done. Of course. I mean, even the idea of robbing a convenience store, even if you think you can do it in your head, coming down in the moment, the amount your adrenaline would be going, your heart would be racing, the fear of what could happen the willingness to maybe have to take someone's life. I mean, that's going to be the pressure as high as you can get it, which like you stated, the people who are best are dealing with the pressure of being in an intense situation like that, plus dealing with the aspect of maybe being taking someone's life or having their life taken. Uh, that's the military and they're the best at it. Specifically, someone like Robert De Niro in Deer Hunter. <laughs> in RD? RD, no? I mean, yes, RD, yes, RD. He's very good at playing roulette with a gun and has no uh, problem oh, yeah. just being cool when they're when everything is really really fucked up. So, because keep in mind, guys, this is Vietnam days. This is this is when yeah. you're getting dudes like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, or World War II vets because that's also some of the suspects. So, it was back yeah. to the story. Um, yeah, well, we don't think okay, we're at Vietnam because uh, he was in his 40s. Yeah, probably right. Yeah, yeah, 40. So it would, it would be likely that he was a World War II vet or somebody who maybe even went to Vietnam maybe on Vietnam, a humanitarian mission. Right, yeah. right. But was probably in the military before that. So we'll like. get there. But anyway, so we're at a point, we're at a 727. Now we're left with uh, a few a few stewardesses or less than that and two pilots and uh, our friend D.B. Cooper. And our, our star of our show here, D.B. Cooper himself. D.B. Cooper. Um, and he has a couple of demands and, before they take off, doesn't he? Because he did. He perfectly. Yeah, yeah, he had a couple of demands. You're right, Joe. So um, uh, one of them wasn't possible, if I'm right. Um, right. Yes, he, he requested that they take off. That's cool. Um, fly to Mexico, no stops. No not stop. a problem. Usually, not a problem. Um, but he and wanted the... This guy's trying to make a getaway in Mexico, obviously. He wants us to land in Mexico, and he's hoping he can make a getaway at the airport in Mexico City, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, time. yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, something... Hey, yeah, we're... You make a big score. You, you go down south to Mexico. You're sipping margaritas a week later. They can't catch you. That's the idea, right? So $1.2 million dollars later, and you're just... Uh, it's no rules. It's great. So... Yeah. Um, so he asked for this. I've read two different things on this one, and I can't figure out what's true and what's not. Okay. He has to one. take off, head to Mexico with the landing gear down the whole time, yep. flaps at 15 degrees, which I heard one thing said 15 degrees, one thing said flaps up. And for those who know, flaps are what go down on the wing when they make that weird noise when you go to land. So yeah, it adds it more lift. So you can fly slower. Yep. 
Yeah, you can fly slower with the flaps down because you have more well, surface area on the wing. According to what? the other things he demanded, that he would want the flaps down. It, it makes more sense to me, rather. I'm not sure which one's true, which one's not, but it makes sense to what he was demanding that he'd want the flaps down to, you know. Yeah, yeah, fly exactly. Slower. Yep, exactly. So um, they might not know why he wants this now, but the audience knows and we all know why he might want this thing going low and slow, baby. He wants it low. Under 10,000, exactly. Under 10,000 feet, landing gear down. Flaps at 15 degrees, which I don't think they go much past 30, so it'd be about halfway. Um, sure. And to keep it under 200 miles an hour, pretty clear. This right. guy, oh, and he also the one request that I don't think they could fulfill off the bat That's was right. he wanted to take off with the back door down. Yeah, he wants the aft staircase down the whole time. I, I don't want it closed at all. From this point on, I want it wide open. And at that point, the flight crew might have realized this guy might not be willing to go all the way to Mexico with the staircase down. You might have and a different idea. Exactly. And from from uh, soup to nuts, as they say, this whole hijacking, <laughs> <laughs> it only took about two and a half hours from when he first lends the note over to the flight attendant to him having parachutes strapped up and ready to go with $200,000 in tow, which they said added about 20 pounds to his body with, with the money and the parachutes. So that adds a little bit of weight to what's going to happen here. And we are not long. I couldn't find the exact amount of time because even the flight crew, they were not um, permitted by him to be to be watching him. He he lines up and he has the flight attendant open up the aft staircase. At Before 10, that, ten thousand feet. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Before that's an important detail. It has to do with that shitty bag. Okay, please. Yeah, let me know. Yep. And this is one of the suspects hinted at this. Mm -hmm. Can you? What is a daisy chain? Like when you say I daisy chain that, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know the initial term of it, but it, it, it has the same idea of, um, well, what it, what it has to do, I think initially, the daisy part is that tying stems of flowers together to make like a wreath or like uh, some kind of decoration. Okay, when you're yeah. putting together, it's almost like you're plugging a power source into an extension cord, into an extension cord. That's what you call it. You daisy chain in it, but I guess if you want to daisy chain it, it's kind of like doing it half fast, but you're connecting it all together. You know, got you're, it, you're got leaving, it. leaving the uh, structural integrity, you're not really applying it there. Yeah, it's, it's not a good, it's not a good move. So right. um, before you get to your point, so uh, he had that knapsack and imagine just a, a duffel bag with no handles on it. I'm guessing right. is what it looked like. Um, gotta be. And he was like, oh, well, shit, this is really, how am I supposed to jump with that? He was given, of the four parachutes, he was given one dummy, but it was very clearly marked with a red X that it was a dummy. Um, and I think yeah. it was pink. Yeah, was like I a, think it was clearly a, yeah, a dummy parachute. It wasn't even like they were trying to hide it from him at that point, right? Because it would be yes. pretty obvious. Especially after they already heard him say the specific parachute he wanted. They have to assume that this guy knows what the parachutes. We're not going to, you know, fool him yeah. with that. Yeah, again, yeah, exactly. Giving into his demands, but giving it just the right amount that he has to keep doing it. Like, you're barely giving him anything, but it counts as still having it. And it's not enough for him to write it off as, all right, Fuck it, I'm gonna blow it. <laughs> like, I'm gonna do it in this time because you, you gave me the wrong parachute. Um, exactly. It's, it's not enough to make that call if he's gonna be the one who does it in. Exactly. And that also so, has the capability of blowing the bomb, which we are all we are still not sure to this day whether he no one knows. could have been all bluster. We don't know. Yep, exactly. So so apparently he took that dummy shoot and he daisy chained his nap the knapsack with it. In order to tie it to his to his person, right? He wanted to something, yeah, something like that. That's what I would think he would do. But that's yeah, all the details that I was able to get during a skydive, which you know, it, it makes for a funny picture of a guy holding a bag of cash jumping out of a plane. But it's completely untenable, and you'd know that going into it that you wouldn't be able to 
just have the grip strength of your hand holding on to all this money the entire time. You have to secure it to your body somehow if you're thinking you're going to hit the ground. Some like point, Joe right? said, it's it's like holding your duffel bag out of a window of your you know car on the highway. Yeah. It's not really something you're going to want to do. It's not going to happen. Like yeah, at that speed of winds of 200 miles an hour going by, I mean, that's much faster than even a car on the highway, which is hard for most people to do anyways. So that's, yeah, you know, totally. Oh, yeah. And you're tumbling yeah, and God knows what else are free for the speed of putting your hand out your car on the highway. That's how fast they're going. And he, that, that's the slow version. Like you said earlier, that's as slow as they can go. Exactly. Yep. So, um, so back to your story about they close the curtains and he has a attendant open up the ramp. Or, or he, he, he has them ask where the, the controls are. It. Initially, yeah. he wanted the pilot to do it remotely so that no one could see him do it and that he could jump off when he felt comfortable. But I, I think they actually informed him how to do it himself so they didn't know um, exactly when he was going to do it. But once the, the ramp goes down mid-flight, th there's a noticeable difference, especially in the gauges by the pilots. They can see that they can tell, essentially, the ramp has gone down. You can tell the difference between the weight distribution when it shifts backwards and uh, now you get a lot more drag on the plane they don't know the exact time the ramp went down but they can guess it within a reasonable amount of minutes because of the fact that it shifted the flight of the entire plane itself and that's the last time as far as i know maybe you know more than this that's the last time that anyone of the flight crew ever saw db cooper was before he left to open the ramp and then mm -hmm. It was at his own discretion whether when he, what time he wanted to jump off the plane and any estimates on when he actually jumped is speculative within that time frame because no one actually saw him physically take off the plane. I mean, we don't have any cameras back then. There's no rear view mirrors on 727. <laughs> right? So they didn't actually see him jump. It's just a guess of when he might have jumped, which they think was uh, north of Portland because it's the same amount of time of the flight. It's about an, a little over an hour flight and they hadn't been in the air for very long. So this guy uh, probably took off uh, north of Portland, they think, and it couldn't have been that big of a range because they hadn't been flying that long out of Seattle. So mm -hmm. somewhere in the Pacific Northwest is where he take, decides to take the leap of faith with 200 grand on his chest and a couple of parachutes on his back and hope in his heart and his tie <laughs> on the cabin. And it's probably his bourbon still there too. I hope he finished his drink before he jumped. I mean, God willing. The guy oh, you can't nod. I mean, yeah, you've seen so many movies about like, you shows like even like, like, I, I just remember like, what was it like uh, K-19 or one of the submarine movies? They're just like crushed. Oh, no, no. It was, it was Das Boot, the show. They're like, oh. Das Boot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Out, you know? It's never a time, you know? You're, 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 yeah. Save it for later. You might not make it back. You definitely yeah, you can't just go, nah, I'm good now. I'm going to go out. <laughs> I'm watching my figure. <laughs> All right. Yeah, exactly. No, nah, I'm not really in the mood right now. I'm just leaving it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, that's, that's the same information I've got is that... Uh, Tina shut that uh, first class curtain, and uh, then they then oh, he then they felt uh, some sort of oscillation back there, and um, yeah, the ramp going and uh, and then that airplane, which I think is weird, landed in Reno. Uh, oh, so that all happened that, that they felt the oscillation at eight twelve. Okay. Eight twelve p.m. Um, mm -hmm. And then it landed in Reno at eleven p.m. Really. I would think that anytime you have any sort of uh, a flight that uh, has something going on, specifically this, <laughs> you would... Okay, guys, uh, yeah, we think you jumped off the airplane. It's 8.12 p.m. Um, can you divert us to... <laughs> Air traffic control, can you please divert us to the nearest airport so we can get the fuck off this thing? Um, yeah. No, or 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 you could say, you could right? say, let's stay in the air for another three fucking hours. 
Yeah. I, I think mean, that's odd, right? Definitely odd. Yeah, I mean, that's three hours. Odd. Like you'd be like, oh, so what do you just do? Sit there and talk about it? There's no I mean, at some point you want you want someone to check, but I guess the people are still going on the assumption that if this if this goes sour, he's going to blow the whole thing. Um, but you have to assume at that time the guy's got what he wants. All he needs to do is get out of here, and he's probably not going to blow it, especially after you, we already think he left. I would think you'd want to land as soon as possible, like you said. I would think so too. So I, was, I think that's so strange that it was, uh, a couple weird things happened. Two weird things at this point. So. As mentioned, the manhunt begins. At this point, D.B. Cooper could be dead. He could be chilling on a beach somewhere. He could be at his house, because there's one of them who has a house near uh, that particular place in Oregon. Um, it's hard to say, but all we know is that he essentially leaps from the back of the 727 into the forest of the Pacific Northwest that night. It was about 20 degrees outside with the wind chill bringing it down to near zero degrees. And that doesn't even count 10,000 feet up at 200 mile an hour winds. It was ice, ice cold outside. Negative 40 up there. Yeah, up, oh, thank you. Up there at negative 40. So up there, completely below zero. Even down on the forest floor, it was freezing cold with, you know, harsh conditions. They said that the cloud cover was about, about 5,000 feet, which means he was diving into clouds at that point. It'd be hard oh, to yeah, we didn't even mention it was a shitty day. I mean, it, it was, was like horrible, solid shit day. And a yeah. terrible place to do it too. The Pacific Northwest, it's raining half the time, anyways. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just guaranteed Awful probably conditions. rain all the time. There Awful was visibility. Conditions. Visibility clearly sucked. Um, he didn't have a timer on him, so if he jumped out, he didn't know how like long he had till he hit till he died. Jump. The last thing we know about DB Cooper for sure is that he jumped out of a plane. But we just said how cold it was outside, what time it was, the cloud cover, and then. Now the rest we're talking about is all the search, the speculation, and what we know now. The last thing we know for sure about D.B. Cooper happened in that moment. Yep. And that's from here. That's the lot. To this day, he jumped out of that airplane wearing some mediocre-ass suit like this. Yeah. Um, left his tie and eight cigarette butts on the airplane and, a and one strand of hair on the headrest, and that's all we got. That's all so, we got. That's all we find. Yep, and his seven up. Um, and his charming mentality. Those and his, yep, and his, and his charm will be a legend forever with those <laughs> yeah. stewardesses. So, yeah. um, so part anyway. of the search began. Part of the search began with uh, a millionaire uh, who was near Lake Merwin, uh, which is near where Merwin. they think that he landed. Yeah, Merwin. Um, and what he, what did, what did, what did this millionaire do? I forget his name, but it's probably funny. Uh, he rented a submarine and he trolled that lake looking oh, for evidence. Well, Second thing. Own heart. What was that? He's a man after Elon Musk's own heart. A that 1971 man. Elon Musk. I got the money yep. and I got the willpower. I'm going to get a submarine and troll the lake. I mean, imagine that. Just, imagine you're just that rich and that bored where there's this whole, there's this whole media know. sensation going on and you go, well, I, I, I'm just going to rent the summary and look at this lake that may probably have nothing to do with this, but I'm going to do it. I have the ability to do that. So then I will. Yep, it's on. So that was one. And uh, surprise, didn't find anything last we checked. Or maybe he did. He didn't tell us, but I don't think he did. Part two is that. to not tell anybody. If he found a shoe, he would be screaming for the rafters. He'd be like, I yeah. know. I'm the one who found it. There's this no way he, he definitely would have told people. I mean, he made a big deal out of it. We know about it now. Yeah, I Even think I now, heard he found the eighth cigarette butt. <laughs> 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 I 
in Lake Merwin. I think that's what he maybe needs. I I am more than confident that if he found anything, we would know about it because that guy was probably loudmouth about everything he was doing at that time, which I don't blame uh, him for. Yeah, he clearly has everything else in the world besides fame, so he probably just was trying to yeah. get any inch he can because he moved to yeah. L.A. when he was in his fucking teens and didn't make it and wants to be a movie exactly. star, and now he's living in Portland he's yeah. or something. Takes all time. We're just speculating at this point. Uh, yep. Second second fact that I came across is um, is a big LMAO for this. Um, okay. uh, uh, specifically, something that's a really big deal to get up in the air was brought up is in the, the air. SL71 Blackbird? <laughs> Weirdly, <laughs> weird mention that you said that. It's the SR71 Blackbird. <laughs> the CIA sent up that thing a couple times, which is, oh, un- which is hilarious because... For those of you who don't know, that is, to this day, still the fastest airplane that we have on record. On record. Right. So those are the two weird facts. we got a submarine mission. we got a SR-71 flying looking for him, which is like really fun for the people in the area. To find this guy, yeah. Yeah, right? So um, so as far as I so, know. So my favorite one, so, this is so, so all right, so where, where are we at? So that's, that's the start of the manhunt. And they did, so b- b- before we... The manhunt's not that exciting. There's actually, they did a, a typical search with a couple hundred people. It includes the, the Federal uh, Bureau of Investigations, FBI, and the state police of Washington and Oregon. They, they had to do a whole, you know, search mission. Almost like you're looking for um, a body where there's a murder case, whatever. It, it's, exactly. a, it's a missing person's thing. The missing person just happens to have had a hijacking mission and absconded with $200,000 in military parachutes. But it's the same idea. We're looking for yeah. what they which most people believe who are experts at the time people looking for them they're not looking for cooper in the woods they're looking for a body and a parachute and hopefully the money that's what they're looking for yep body parachute money um and they they do that by they know the trajectory of the airplane based off of air traffic control this the speed the wind direction where this guy they they do a search radius of where this guy probably landed and they're going right. to look for that type of thing. And they and can't find the parachute first, probably, hopefully at the top of the canopy, caught on a tree, easier to find than finding a body on the ground level, if they're yep. lucky. And yep. a lot of people who are uh, skydivers, from what I read, have said that most of the time, that, that's the issue, is that even the, the idea of him jumping at 10,000 feet in those awful conditions probably wouldn't have been as dangerous as the the part that does kill you which is the part where you hit the ground or hit a tree on the way down and that's the part yeah, specifically that- yeah exactly uh, a, a tree on the way down because it's northwest uh, pacific and those trees are very pointy yeah and there's a lot um, of- as we've seen in twin peaks in the intro very pointy trees very pointy and there's a ton of them and so so we're mid manhunt so we're at a point where we got we got one suspect off the fucking gate do we and we do um there because specifically uh the fbi um, in particular they already know the name dan cooper he's the guy who did it who are they looking for besides the body and the parachute there's a suspect already who's that there's a suspect pretty much off the bat because uh as always (laughs) the first thing you do when you've got a skyjacking and the guy gives you a name is that you pull up a database which is probably a bunch of books at that point of all the Dan Coopers in the area, <laughs> you go. of course, yeah, maybe he's dumb enough after all these decisions he made to actually write. Let's his go name find the Dan Coopers within a hundred mile radius, and they got one. Um, 
<laughs> got one. And Which again, uh, we said, you, you don't have to show your ID, so you could make up your name as Big Bird Sesame Street for your name, and they'd have to take you seriously for it. So, but they're, they're hoping he did his real name, yeah. Dan Cooper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're looking for Big Bird Sesame Streets in uh, Portland, Oregon. They find one yeah. attempt. Can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? <laughs> that's, that's the guy. So, uh, so they found Dan Cooper in the area um, who was a criminal. And he was a he was a cat burglar. Uh, does that mean you steal cats? <laughs> That's not. I'm so glad. Okay, because I I read that and I saw him like <laughs> one as a as a cat dad. I I think that That's hard. hard. Yeah, that is. Like, yeah, give him some credit. And people are giving shit for because he's a cat burglar. Um, but I'm like, that's a that's a pretty hard thing to do. Last I checked. <laughs> So what's a cat burglar? A cat burglar, it's an old timey phrase. We never use the phrase now, but it has to do, uh, basically you'd say like it's a petty thief. Someone who steals like, you know, luxury watches. items that are worth a lot of money, but yeah, you're stealing things like watches, jewelry. Yeah, you're a cat burglar. You're, 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 you're breaking in. <laughs> you're breaking in, you're taking expensive things, but you're not like, you're not gonna clean out a whole house or a mansion with that. You're going in, you're taking a couple of pearl necklaces, a couple of diamond rings, you're out of there. You're a cat In and out like a thief in the night. So the, I got it. Okay, cool. Um, that's a fun new fact for me. Um, so yeah, we went, that so was, the cops, yeah, the cops uh, and the media are like, we got him. Dan Cooper, stealing watches. We got him. It's clearly him. Obviously. Uh, and I don't know where the B came in, um, but uh, from then on, he was known as D.B. Cooper. I, I was heard that it was a, uh, a media mistake, that it was a, a yeah. communication error between the telegraphs that they started calling him D.B. Maybe that they thought his middle name started with a B instead of calling him Dan Cooper. But as far as a boarding pass is concerned, it didn't say D.B. Cooper on it. It said Dan Cooper, but we yeah, Dan, yeah, so as D.B. Cooper for whatever reason. Got it. That is. Interesting. Yeah. So this particular source said it had to do with this this uh, piece of shit, Dan Cooper, um, yeah. burglar burglar guy. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that that's that suspect number one. Clearly not him. Um, they got all excited like the media does. Um, right. There yeah, is the, one the, thing the, that is interesting. Yeah. What? Oh yeah. You, they go after the first thing they see and they go, "Hey, we got him. It's over." Not yeah. Not yeah. Like exactly. Him. Yeah. We got the guy. Um, so next thing is uh, an important thing. There was a, there was another D.B. Cooper or uh, Dan Cooper, maybe, um, who was uh, from the 40s or 50s in a comic book. Did you hear that one? Yeah, he is a, a comic book uh, artist or writer, right? They think he might have based his alias on that comic book writer, right? Yeah, so he might have been like, and it was in, it never was in English. It was in French. So they think maybe he was Canadian. Hmm. Um, in this, and he decided to name himself DB or Dan. I don't know what the comic. Yeah, it would be like Dan Cooper as a like what? Stan Lee. You, you're on, I'm the good hijacker, Stan Lee, and people would immediately think, well, you know, is his name really Stan Lee, or is he naming himself after the Marvel comic book writer who did Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, all that? People would immediately exactly. draw their eyes to, oh, this is this got to be a joke, right? But of course, the police go after all the Stanley Lees in the county and try to find the real Stanley. Yeah, exactly. So same type of thing where they think maybe he was, this comic was about a Canadian fighter pilot who jumped out of planes. Like, oh, maybe maybe this guy read that. Um, and, and, and maybe confirmation bias at that point, looking too much into it and trying to bring things together that don't necessarily belong. But that that could be a big tongue-in-cheek to you. Hey, I'm a guy who jumps out of planes. I'm going to call myself D.B. Cooper. 
I mean, that just yeah. And I like I like this like really shitty niche comic book from Canada, written only in yeah. French. Yeah, um, and but most people won't know it, so it won't draw it directly to what I'm doing. But people who do right, get right, it, right, get it. Yep. As to his mystique. Exactly. So um, yeah, so we're we're on to suspects at this point. I mean, we're kind of going down that road. Um, yeah. Before we, we get to uh, one more thing about the manhunt, though, because the last thing that we yeah, can yeah. find for hard evidence about him was something that was just so strange that it would even turn up and that people would be, you know, concerned about it, is that um, it was about eight years later, or not, rather nine years later, we're in 1980 at this point, and... Yes, yes, sorry, we forgot us. Yeah. yeah, just to, just to say before we get into the possible subject, north of mm -hmm. Portland on the Columbia River, uh, a little boy named Timmy, that's so hilarious, tiny Tim. <laughs> Timmy, a little boy named Timmy, yep. He, he make sure he's digging his little shovel by the beach. It's a river beach, though, it's not the ocean. And he gets by the side, and they ended up finding a sack of rotting, wet, soaking wet money, and it's denominations of $20 bills. I mean, most of them were torn to shreds. You could barely even see the middle of them. But some of them had their, excuse me, had their serial numbers on them. And even though Cooper requested that all the bills be non-sequential so they wouldn't be able to be tracked to them easily the authorities were still able to record the general serial numbers by a group and also that they were all minted in san francisco to make it a little easier for them to narrow down the amount of money nowadays we could feed that through a money counter we'd have every bill no matter how sequential they were we'd be able to tell everyone within a matter of seconds in the 70s wasn't as possible, they had to go more generalized. So they made sure all the bills were minted in San Francisco and they had relatively similar numbers. So they were able to figure out that within a reasonable doubt, the money found in the bag was probably from the initial handoff of that ransom because they all matched up relatively to the money that Cooper took. In the, in the bag of money, it was about $5,800, uh, not usable. Even if it wasn't evidence, it was all destroyed to shit, but it was a lot of money. And it was at the mouth of a river leading towards the Pacific Ocean. So people think that that might have been uh, part of what happened to the money. I mean, they, 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 uh, people are assuming that it run down river after at some point. But the notion that there's only that much money in the bag seems kind of suspect because of the fact that he had 200 grand. And even though that $5,800 seemed to be the money that was given in the ransom, that's all they found. And it was nine years later. So it was completely in different circumstances. At the same time, it does say that the money moved at some point. I mean, maybe he had dropped it in the river or maybe it had fallen out of the plane to the river. But at some point, this money washed down river and nine years later, they found it and they could <clears throat> almost pinpoint it to D.B. Cooper, which is an interesting part of the story, which as far as I know, maybe you know better, is the last piece of hard evidence that has ever been found about the hijacking event. It is nine years later. And as far as I know, it's the last piece of hard evidence. And a lot of what we know now is um, trying to look back at the details that we already have with a more modern eye and a more scrupulous eye. And maybe that'll right. leave us into that our- That is pretty system. much the last piece of evidence that we actually have. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it does, it does tie really specifically into another point. Mm -hmm. um, into a, a into a, actually the same point is that mm -hmm. so that that money you didn't you didn't say the condition of the money you didn't say the the 
Uh, you mentioned the condition because it was kind of the, the it was like a twenty five percent of the size, like it was just the middle part. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw the very clearly the same money. Most of them were were like almost like you carved out the middle. Yeah, it was like middle. yeah, you just cut the middle out. Only it was like eroded around the outside. Um, yeah. The way that that little Timmy found that money is that it was stacked um, like this. Which again, there's 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 ways where if it flew on the river and then went there and then fell into the the sand pit and. Whatever, it could be the case, but overall, it looked like it was, according to the one source I got, it looked like the money was placed there. Sure. So, so he could have, he, you know, uh, D.B. Cooper could have eaten shit um, when he fell out of the airplane um, and died and then the bag flew on the river and then went to there, especially 10 years timeline. I, yeah. I as the non-expert, think it's possible. Um, but the way that it was presented, they said it looked like it was very clearly buried there. But why would you bury 5,800 bucks? I mean, I guess if you did 5,800 bucks uh, 20 times, no, uh, 40 times, then you could go around and collect all your money or whatever whatever he had to do. But overall, right. yeah. Buried, so what they said- The condition of the money shows that whoever was burying it had no idea that it would be there that long. I mean, it was, it was unusable, even if you knew where it was. I mean, burying it in mm. a paper bag on a sandy estuary at the end of a river you're asking for it to be ruined there's no reason to bury it there yeah no question it, it, it didn't look like it was buried to me it seems more like that is a like retelling of it seeming like oh yeah it's a buried treasure thing because i mean if you actually were going back for that money which you might have thought of you you fucked that up and the kind of person that i assumed db cooper was didn't seem to better like that yeah. I, yeah, that's all I'm saying. I'm not really sure. No, that's yeah. that's actually a really, really, really good wow. point. And think about think about this. So take take your old duffel bag, um, throw throw some tightly packed money in there, and then throw it down a river. And ten years could. later, it, it's you've got you've got a fifty percent chance that's going to land right side up, and sink. If you find it, that it'll look like it's buried, but it's actually not. So maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very it, it's very possible that he might have died and then it it floated down. And this is just one piece of it. Totally true. Um, sure. But but say, we're not here um, to say that right now. We're going to go into the possible suspects now that we're gotten to the end of our evidence that we could find at the time of DB Cooper. Even nine years later, we're going to launch into who is DB Cooper because the whole idea of this and the whole mystery behind the whole thing is the fact that he's never been found and convicted of his crimes. I mean, at this point, even if we haven't found the person he might have died of old age or of natural college causes who knows it's hard to say but there is a litany of people who are not only fit the description of this guy but they have a lot of pieces that make them seem like they very well could be db cooper we're going to go into those now for you and our uh our final segment which is who is this guy i mean we, we know we think what this guy is, is but who is he he's a real person who is he the fbi couldn't even figure out who he is I'm sure we can do that in the next 10 minutes because we know what's up. So let's do it. Let's do it. Joe, who's suspect number one? No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. Actually, just so you guys, uh, so the viewers know, um, neither of us know who we both think it is. We haven't talked at all about who we think the possible suspects are. We don't. And there's, there's just to keep in mind, we have narrowed it down from a thousand, over a thousand suspects. To yeah, about four or five. The FBI had a thousand suspects. I think they narrowed it down to 25 within the first year. And then now our list is the, the ones we, we believe are the most um, the most plausible, the ones that seem to be the most plausible to be DB Cooper. Exactly. 
Um, and and to be the most plausible to be DB Cooper, Joe, I want you to fill in after after a couple of basic facts I'm going to share about sure. what makes uh, what we what we actually know about DB Cooper. Yeah, who's um, DB Cooper to us? Like, if we had to decide what what aspects we could put on someone who already exists and said that's a very DB Cooper thing to be, you have a DB Cooper aspect to you. <clears throat> Exactly. So we can get, we can break it down into two things to start, um, sure. and I like to do extremes. Um, you do can it. have a you can have a dude in 1971 who's a hippie who's angry, and just gets on an airplane, wants to hijack and jump off it and do all these things. Oh, unlikely. before we go Very on, unlikely. I completely forgot this quote. I can forgot this quote before. Let's do it. Yeah. What do you got? The quote was, as uh, he already had the money, and he was talking to the flight attendant, and she said, you know, Tina. Yeah, she said, she said, or she, yeah. she said, I don't know who it was. It was one of them. I don't know which one talked to him and whatever talked Tina or Florence. We know it's Tina or Florence. It was one of, yeah, it was one of the two. And I should have mm -hmm. done the research and know who said it. But it, it, this quote enthralled me when I heard it. And it's part of the DB Cuber in my head. Was, she said to him after he was accomplishing this whole crime, she said, man, you, you must have a grudge against somebody, huh? Do you have a grudge against Northwest Airlines? And he goes, I don't have a grudge against Northwest Airlines, but I have a grudge. And that is one of our closest looks into his psyche that we could say, because he almost said nothing about himself the entire time, but he did tell her, I don't have a grudge against Northwest Airlines, but I do have a grudge, which is part of um, maybe his motivation. For That's a really good point. So um, I, wanted to I have a couple of motivations, but Joe, I want to just, because I don't know if I wrote them down, I want to share them. I know no, two grudges from two different people. Okay. And oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't do the grudges when we do the people, though. Don't don't give me the people and the grudges right now. Or you're you're going to spoil all your uh, all your suspects. Let's let's give. Okay. A general right. Let me idea. let me just make sure. Let me make sure I have grudges down. Hang on. Uh, yeah. I just got to take a note. Grudge. Because you're a grudge is probably one of the big aspects of who mm -hmm. we would suspect DB Cooper to be, and grudge could be one of them. You don't need to have specific grudges. Oh man, dude, I just figured out. Yeah, you're no, you're right. Grudge. I just, could be I just figured out that this the only two grudges that I know of are actually the same guy. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yep. Same Good guy. Doing. So, so, so. The, the generalized aspects that we believe DB Cooper has to have to, yes. to be plausible as DB Cooper. Number one, maybe and seems to be has a grudge. Has a grudge. A this grudge. is a guy with a grudge. But he's really nice. He's really good to people. Doesn't uh, have a grudge at the moment. in general. He's not trying to burn the world down. He has a grudge at something specific that he is willing to do this, and he's not going to take it out on people around him initially, besides putting their lives at risk, supposedly, with his fake bomb or real bomb, whatever he mm -hmm. had. But yeah, he's got a grudge, it seems. It seems that he, yep. he said it, and even it, people who are experts afterwards who are on criminal psychology seem to think that that probably tracks with his behavior. He's got a grudge. Yeah, so the, the, the psyche of D.B. Cooper is that He's somebody who's very nice to strangers, somebody who's going to be very pleasant at Dunkin' Donuts, but maybe sure. he's not so great to the 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 at more intimate levels of his life, like his wife or his so um, might believe or his job in some way, his yeah. job or his government well, or his country or whatever it is. Um, sure. Okay, so that's number one is that he's got a grudge. Number two, he is five eight. <laughs> that seems five to be eight. a fact. He's five eight. I I haven't seen that. I, I saw that he was closer to 5'11", uh, that he was a tall man, especially for 1970. No, I've got, I've got 5'8". Okay. 
because I'm five eight and I'm not very tall. But in 1971, I'm also five eight and I'm not very tall. Maybe in 1971 we were tall because part of his description is that he's a relatively tall man. But in 1971, that's a lot different than now, where people are up to six five and they, they that's how you you're not tall until you're six five now. But in 1971, you don't have to be over six feet to be tall. I wouldn't imagine. That's true. I just want to double check mm -hmm. that that what I'm saying is right, just because I thought it would it could be the other way around that he was because I know one of the suspects was. Yeah, one um, of the suspects is five eight and probably. Oh, dude, no, no, sorry, I am wrong. I am wrong about sure. this. I am wrong because I'm thinking of of one of the of suspect number two in my head. Yeah, who this, was this who was five eight? So they and it says it. Cooper was five ten to six feet. Okay, so that yeah, now we're on the same page. I'm wrong. So, sorry. Okay, well, let's get. I, I just want to make sure that's clear because I I switched a suspect and Cooper. Um, yeah. So Cooper yeah, was yeah, between five ten and six yeah. feet tall, and mm -hmm. just for reference. Me and Joe are five, five eight. eight. <laughs> we're both five eight. So okay, so okay. All right. So so Cooper is five between five ten and six feet. Mm -hmm. uh, the DB Cooper that we were told about. Got to be a middle-aged white, white male. Yep. Yeah, middle-aged as in, in the in his forties. He spoke like he was intelligent, or at least had the appearance of being intelligent the way he spoke. Mm -hmm. And yep. that people believe that he most likely had some type of military background, at least in the in the beginning of it, because of his his knowledge about um, not only air travel but skydiving and things like that. People assumed he must have some kind of military background, mm -hmm. especially like we said, 1971. It's more rare than ever than it is now to have that kind of knowledge about um, parachuting out of the sky, jumping out of an airplane. It's still pretty rare now, but even more rare in 1971. Like we said, people weren't doing it as a pastime really it had to be really more of your career or a major focus in your life you weren't doing it for a weekend in 71 no no it wasn't that type of thing um not yet absolutely joe what, what color were his eyes uh i i, I can't remember i think they said they were they were uh, green and some people had brown eyes but i'm not sure if they were green or not we were told they were brown they were that's brown. a pretty Yep, brown eyes. Um, and what color was his tie? And a detail about the tie. Uh, I think the tie was blue or purple. It was a darker color. I'm not sure. It's all good. Black tie, and it specifically was a clip-on tie. Clip-on. A clip-on black tie, and he that was one of the items he left behind was a black clip-on tie. Right. So, so, so who's who? Who do you have? Um, I don't have these in any particular order. Um, but uh, I guess, do you want to start with your with with just suspect number one, which isn't necessarily the suspect, just who's first on your list of people yeah. who exist? Uh, yeah. So I have I have uh, four suspects on on the list here that I'm the most has seen to me the the top people yep. that, that are you know. Anyways, go ahead. Uh, so my number one on the list, which I like I said, no particular order, but this one seems to give credence more than some of the other ones I have, is Robert Rackstraw. Uh, Robert Rackstraw became a paratrooper mm -hmm. um, when he was uh, growing up. He had a, a love for skydiving coming from his uncle. He spent a summer with his uncle. His uncle was named, uh, nicknamed Cooper. So as he got older, he really on the moniker Cooper to be more like his uncle, and he got into skydiving. So he ended the military and immediately wanted to start becoming a paratrooper as soon as possible. He wanted to be more like his uncle. He had a love for mm -hmm. jumping out of airplanes, which seems to track pretty closely to what D.B. Cooper's expertise might have been. Uh, he also had a knowledge of explosives. He entered uh, the, the Special Forces in 
specializing in explosives and detonations. And besides being a paratrooper, his area of expertise was explosives, which also leads it to be part of if Cooper wanted to make uh, a real bomb or a fake bomb or what would look like a, a relatively real bomb, he might have that background as part of it. He also was a helicopter pilot uh, in, in his later career and did a lot of uh, low navigation flights over the West Coast of the United States. So he might have been fam more familiar than most people, especially in, this, in the late 60s or early 70s, at the layout of what it's like to be flying over the Pacific Northwest. Um, he actually was uh, accredited with a dishonorable discharge, though. He never left the military with honors, even though he said he had a lot of decorated medals. He was kicked out of the military because he had a history of domestic abuse with his wife, and he was uh, um, arrested on multiple occasions for um, abusing his wife. So they can't have that in the military. On top of that, his family said that he was uh, a natural con man. He would lie to them. He would lie to his friends, his girlfriends, other people like that. He was just this kind of guy who was relatively dishonest and was hard to get along with. So not only uh, was he uh, had, committing domestic abuse at home, he was a habitual liar and would often lie about his rank to other military members and, and lie about his medals and accolades, which that all combined, the military gave him the old heave-ho, as it were, and he was divorced not soon after leaving the military, which leads me to a place where this guy has a grudge and he's got the expertise to do it and he's not got a lot to lose. And that's my my first uh, suspect, which is Robert Rackshaw. Yep. And I want to add a, a did you, sorry, Rackstraw. Yeah. Um, Please. So so to, to reiterate, uh, Robert Rackshaw was a shipbag. He he did yeah. lie about everything. He was Hold a on, he was a con artist, an abuser, a check forger, a thief. Potentially a murderer. His family, his family didn't trust him. I mean, yeah. no one. So right before 1971 or 1971, shit hit the fan hardcore for Robert Rackstraw. Um, the military gave him that dishonorable discharge, which is as bad as it gets, um, right. because he uh, he was an officer, um, yes. and he lied about going to college. Um, he lied about his 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 service in Vietnam. Um, yeah. and he was, uh, although he was, a, a, it looks like an F-105 pilot in Vietnam who blew up like tunnels type of thing. So like he definitely did stuff, but, um, yeah. but he got involved with oh. off the record things in Vietnam. So he's doing like private things, which is always a bad news. Um, yeah. but overall definitely a piece of a shit. Of um, to Cambodia, maybe a little, little drop a bomb here, drop a bomb there. No yeah. Yeah. That type of thing. So, um, he he fled to Iran or to the Middle East somewhere and was arrested for murder of his stepfather or his uncle. I forget which one it was. Um, Ooh, the guy who was... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and this all happened and he was sent back to the US um, mm. all, before, all before he was 28. Wow, a life well lived. Huh? And you're talking That's to awesome. two 28-year-olds right now. So, yeah, so we haven't accomplished nearly that many scumbag things in our lives. Yeah, we've got a bomber pilot who has lied about his college education, his military experience, all sorts of things. Um, but he I did say he to cops, he, what? I believe he had three children with his wife as well. So he had he made time. Yeah, for he kind of like got it together in his early twenties or mid twenties, and then, yeah. um, then then the one thing that got him is that he was clearly a wife abuser, um, and there was one particularly bad experience that led to a an wife abuser, abuser investigation too. 
which you have to really, really be abusive in the 70s to get caught as beating your wife. Yeah, it was not a good time for... Violence was widespread around America, and it was basically not talked about. So you had to really be a really awful abuser to ever get caught doing that. Exactly. It was so that you could, you could hit your family at that time, and people wouldn't say anything about it. So you had to really be... You have to be really scotty. And it was one incident that led to the investigation that turned him on his ass. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was one bad abusive incident that yeah. said, let's investigate this guy. And then you get kicked out of everything. And then that was right around the time when the D.B. Cooper hijackings happened. So gotcha. um, so the thing is that lined up is that the, ol- the only thing against him at this point, and he used to, he used to uh, basically, he, he got out of jail. He served a year and then went to college, got a Ph.D. in something, and then an LLM, which is a Master of Law. Um, right. And he used to joke about being D.B. Cooper all the time. Um, yeah. And there's nine points that match up. Brown eyes, short mouth, location of ears, parachuting, mm-hmm. demolition, pilot training. Um, yeah. And everyone was convinced that it was him. And uh, some dude wrote a book about him. Uh, and, uh, and then last point is that in 2013, uh, some sort of documentary or whatever it is showed up at his door to say, let's do it, man. You're probably going to die soon. Um, uh, you know, we know you're involved with the CIA in Vietnam and all that stuff. Let's yeah. get to the bottom of this. And he said, talk to my lawyer. And we never heard from him ever again. Now it's that. Now he's That's passed it. away. I don't know if he's dead, um, but basically oh, at I that point he, he said, he you got to deal with my lawyer because um, I'm not going to talk about it. Right. So that's Robert Rackstraw. So, so for, for, right. for me, that's a solid dude. I mean, the only thing against him is the fact that he is 28, but he could have worn I makeup. I wouldn't say he's a solid dude, but he's definitely a solid suspect to be D.B. Cooper. Did I say solid dude? Because I didn't mean solid dude. I meant solid <laughs> suspect. I know Not you did. solid dude. I wanted to call you out on it. He's a pretty you shitty guys, dude, but he's a solid suspect for sure. Yeah, you don't want to be Robert Rackstraw. Yeah, you're um, a solid dude, and you don't really remind me of Robert Rackstraw. Oh, thanks, Joe. Likewise. Um, real quick one. Uh, another guy who's pretty who's pretty on the besides the height. Um, Kenneth Christensen. Kenneth. Uh, Kenneth. Old father. Old... The guy we briefly mentioned earlier. When we were talking about the heights. I think is who we're talking about, right? Yeah, we got Kenny here. Um, Kenny was him. in the Eleventh Airborne in World War II, so he was about the right age. That's what he has going for him. Mm-hmm. Much closer. Uh, to- Cooper because Cooper they don't and, and no no one thinks he was in his late twenties they all think he was about forty years old. In his forties right? looked like he was in his forties yeah but makeup so makeup could be a thing there they could have done something. Could um, be. Yeah it's the seventies you know there's makeup. Um, so mm-hmm. he was in the eleventh airborne as a paratrooper in World War Two um, and he trained extensively to be deployed to the south to the Pacific um, where he ended up. Um, Getting there kind of right after the war. Uh, so he ended up a mail clerk. Um, so for fun in Japan or wherever he was, uh, he jumped out of airplanes because he was a mail clerk and he was a trained paratrooper. Um, gotcha. So here's the thing is, though, talk about being angry. Um, I don't know why, but Bro. he worked at Northwest Orient uh, and was 44 years old at the time of the hijacking. Chain smoked. And according to his family, had black ties similar um, to uh, D.B. Cooper, which is also similar to the black ties that people who worked for Northwest Orient uh, were. Uh, no one could, could vouch for the whereabouts of, that, of where he was that day, where most other people they could, including one guy who said, they, they, they literally wrote off this one guy, I don't know if he's on here, but they wrote him off because he said that 
well, I was home with my wife uh, at cooking for Thanksgiving, and they said, oh, well, can't be you then. <laughs> yeah, you and everyone else. It's yeah, Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. What so, an alibi. Um, this dude died of cancer in 94 and had, he had the same thing as other people. He had newspaper clippings up right up into the hijacking. Um, right. And that's about it, except for the fact that Cooper, as mentioned, was 5'10 to 6 feet tall. And old Kenneth here was uh, was 5'8 and had hazel eyes, not brown eyes. Yeah. And I think also he was a bit stockier, at least in his later life, than uh, D.B. Cooper was uh, when he was at, at his height, he was more of a slender man. He They wouldn't say he was overweight. Yeah. And Kenneth, yeah, no. uh, his later life, got a little bit stockier and a chubbier individual. Kenny got a little banged up from the old beer drinking. Yeah, and I think we should say going forward, as far as eyewitness accounts, the the flight crew had the best eyewitness accounts because of the amount of time they spent with Cooper and had immediate interactions with him rather than the other passengers. But in a court of law, eyewitness accounts count for a lot because they're sometimes the only evidence that you have. But in in science, when you're taking care of the actual nuts and bolts of what's going on, eyewitness accounts mean almost nothing Aren't because shit. especially yeah. in a stressful event two people can see the same crime and can be completely wrong about it, even though they're both there. So it, we should at least note that going forward, that even though we're looking for Cooper the specific way, it could be a little bit off in different directions. And it would be hard to say because not only is it hard to remember eyewitness testimony, mm. also you're in a high stress situation where you think it's life and death. And it, it could be hard to recall every single moment. But lucky for you, when your adrenaline is spiked up, and you, your trauma center in your brain's lighting up, you are mm -hmm. usually better remembering things than when you're not. So that, that could be to the benefit. So we just understand that going forward. Who do you, who do you got next? We, we covered Kenneth here. We got Kenny. Uh, Kenny's, a, got Kenny's a good suspect. I mean, besides being, um, besides mm -hmm. being uh, his height difference, he's pretty spot on hazel and brown. I don't even know the fucking difference. So um, uh, it's, it's <laughs> especially when you're staring in someone's eye. I mean, I mean, I can see blue versus brown when you're, you know, noting a suspect. Yeah. You say someone has eyes versus hazel eyes versus brown eyes, especially on an airplane yeah. and your life's at risk. I can't see that. It's a negligible difference, if any. Yeah, like I technically have hazel, but I but on my license it says brown. Great example. And I have green eyes, and on the license it says um, you're an asshole, which I didn't ask. <laughs> you didn't ask for that. How does that show yeah. up? Yeah, there's a discrepancy there. Anyways, my eyes are green. Yeah, discrepancy. One five eight. Either way, so my next one on the list that um, actually. This, this one is also, it comes along the lines of uh, this, this, the second person you said as well, where it's more someone who was claiming that they are D.B. Cooper. And it kind of seems mm. like people are working their way back from it. So rather than people building up to having all the aspects of D.B. Cooper that we said before and saying, we're going to build yeah. a profile and find someone to fit it, they found someone and then they took facts to fit the profile, which is always an awful way to understand the truth. If you take what you already want to know and you only pick some facts to fit it, that might look good at the end, but it's never a way to get accurate information. And this is an example of that. So we have Dwayne Weber. Uh, he passed away in 1995, and he was around the same age as D.B. Cooper, especially mm -hmm. um, fitting his age around the time of the hijacking. On his deathbed, he told his wife that he was D.B. Cooper. <laughs> so we can already see where that's going, right? Can you imagine, can you imagine like, you live this whole life. So, so he died in 1995. Yes. Yeah. Can you imagine? So he was what in his seventies. Yes. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. being? You live this whole life and you're in your seventies and you go, 
I'm gonna lie on my deathbed. <laughs> Here's the last thing I'm gonna say to everybody confuse the whole confuse fucking everybody. Guys, I'm DB Cooper. And then you die and you go, What? That guy he really that like was he? Because that's pretty a big deal. Had a concerted effort to make a great lie before he died and he could laugh his way to the grave. But unfortunately, which is I I respect that. I think that's fine, but that's also crazy. I don't think that is the case, not because he wasn't incorrect, but because a lot of times, like we were talking about for our last podcast, people don't necessarily believe they're lying. It's not that they're spinning a net of malice. It's more that they, they genuinely believe what they're saying. They're just hopelessly misguided and wrong about it. So I'll do a quick short one for him. Uh, yeah, yeah, tell me about Dwayne, yeah. His wife was obviously surprised by this, but she started to look into it and she started to do what I say, which is always, you know, a dangerous... Su- project if you're going to try to find the truth which is taking all the things you know what he did say this one thing 20 years ago and 10 years ago he did this and she starts to put all the things together she says that he used to have a lot of uh, night terrors in particular he would speak in his sleep and uh, on more than one occasion he had spoke about leaving fingerprints in an airplane which she thought was suspect because of the fact that maybe db cooper left evidence on the airplane um uh he also he, she said she brought her to the location where the money was found on that beach uh, along the Columbia River in Oregon, which also, I'm sure there's millions of people, you know, every 10 years who visit that river. It seems kind of suspect that you would say that that, that means that he's mm. D.B. Cooper beyond that. And along with that, uh, he had a lifelong knee injury that he said he, he uh, sustained by jumping out of an airplane, which obviously is could very well have happened to D.B. Cooper. I'm, I'm sure he must have gotten some kind of injury. Even the people who are sure that he survived the impact of the jump, no one thinks he got out of it unscathed. He must have been scraped up quite a bit, even if he did land. Uh, and also, he, he uh, was a big, avid uh, reader of D.B. Cooper, which is where it all falls apart for me. They went to his local library, and they found that he actually had his handwriting was in the footnotes of a book about D.B. Cooper, which as his wife would suspect, oh, this must mean that he actually was D.B. Cooper interested. And to me, Moore says, this man is obsessed with the life of D.B. Cooper. And therefore, he maybe believes he is D.B. Cooper or he's fabricated this lie to make his life more interesting. Anyways, he's one of my, my four, I only have four of them, four suspects, but I wouldn't say that he's very solid evidence, but that was definitely looked into by the FBI. The FBI took a DNA sample from him uh, posthumously and they concluded that yeah, his DNA did not match up with any of it. It's not Dwayne. He's not on the cigarettes. He's not on the tie. But his wife still believes that it, he, he, he must be D.B. Cooper. So there's Dwayne. Yeah, there's just not enough evidence. I mean, I don't hate what he's saying with the knee injury and this and that and the other thing. And, but it if, seems he's, got like no, if he's got no background, if that's all he's got is a story, it's like, yeah. dude, I mean, like, I'd love, I would love to just say I could just jump out of the back of an airplane and figure it out, but probably not. Especially not from what we know about D.B. Cooper, it seems. And another quote that I forgot to say is that when he put it, the parachute on, the flight attendant said he put it on as if he did that every day. More like he was, yeah. like, time was he was like, he was, he knew what he was doing. He wasn't trying to figure it out in the moment. He was doing it like it was clockwork. And uh, yeah, it just, it just reeks of, you know, working your way from the solution back to the question rather than the other way around, which you should pose the question and find out the answers. You're saying, this is the answer. How can I prove it? It's weak, weak science. I say that he's not even 
on the top ranking uh, people with the suspects. No, no not at all. And like, if you're well, go, if you're going mental and you're like, mm-hmm. you're a little, you're going a little crazy and like you have, you have pathological liars. He sounds like he's fits that bill pretty hardcore. Like yeah. I did that, but no one, you know, I didn't, they, they're telling me I'm him and I just don't remember that incident, but I could have very easily forgot it because it was a traumatic experience. It's like, you're not yeah, him, man. It's, it's Sorry. all week. And it just goes to show, uh, not that I, I, you know, have the best gripping of like who was going to be DB Cooper, but it's just, we're only going to mention a couple of them over the years, especially the five years after the incident, thousands of people called the FBI and said, not only do they know who DB Cooper is, my brother's DB Cooper. Oh, I yeah. know DB Cooper. I met DB Cooper. I mean, we're only giving you a, a small slice of people who either were convinced they were or said they knew him. I mean, there was so many people the FBI had to sift through and they had to say every time, why did you call us? You live in New Mexico and you were at <laughs> exactly not DB Cooper. You're wasting our fucking time. You and know? I read one about Pennsylvania, and it's like, no, like it's yeah, not. I, mean, I can kind of sympathize like, with the FBI here, especially in the seventies. I know it's a tough job, and you know you, they should be able to find this guy. Like they found most of every hijacker, like we said, besides him. But you know it is ridiculous the amount of people who will call in with bullshit news and just make their jobs that much harder, which could have taken away from a lot of time they could be spending finding the real suspect. Unfortunately, absolutely, it's a it's a enormous. I mean, think about how many like eight hour days someone put into this investigation. Every new candidate is like a whole nother thing and filing oh, and this oh, other oh, thing. It's crazy. So, Cooper, I, my dad said he, he's a DB and he has a mini Cooper. I think that's a good lead. All right, thank you, ma'am. Yeah, thank and you. he has a limp and he uh, he he really likes parachuting, but apparently hasn't thought. You know, yeah, we get well, it. My so, dad smokes cigarettes and drinks bourbon. It's 1970s, so he's a suspect. Okay, thank you, ma'am. Like, yeah, thank you very much. Yep, appreciate no it. He, he always sits an 18C no matter what he does. It's just is. Yeah, we till here. So, um, Richard McCoy. Ooh, the real McCoy, Richard Floyd McCoy. That, I do have uh, Richard there. Floyd McCoy, former Green Beret, uh, who also five months later hijacked another airplane uh, and left a ransom note confirmed to be him. He was confirmed to hijack an airplane five months later. Mm-hmm. Um, ransom this note. Is, this is my favorite story. What? Word. The same. It said, I have a bomb, no funny business. The same note that D.V. Cooper wrote to the flight attendant. Exactly. So it screams potential copycat, but potential we'll copycat. See. Yep. Exactly. So five months later, so this is the story I hinted at earlier that I think is hilarious. I think it's just one of the funniest things I've ever in my life. So um, he did his thing. He hijacked an airplane over LA five months later, um, and the the FBI you know, confirmed to be him. The FBI arrived at his house in Utah, Provo, Utah. Um, and they arrested. Oh, he! I think he demanded a half million. They're blazing over it. That he jumped out of a 727 and landed and survived. Yes. So he did what DB Cooper has been was trying to do in the Northwest. He did it in the Southwest, like you said. He landed and survived the incident with with three hundred thousand dollars more than DB Cooper got away with. So this is it's reeking of DB Cooper right here. Huge deal. Except that he did it over a desert. And um, yes. And uh. I forgot that point. It was even, it was so nonchalant to me that, okay, we have a copycat who did it and survived. Yes, Joe, you're right. This guy did the same damn thing and mm-hmm. left unscathed. Um, yep. But a couple things didn't line up. Um, he definitely was 100% guilty of the April 7th, 1972 hijacking. Um, but he was 29 years old. All right. Which so, would have meant he was 28 the year before. 
when DBC yeah was. right or or not depending on when he was born no one knows i don't really know his birthday or his zodiac sign but um <laughs> yeah anyway so back to back to our buddy rick or richard the real mccoy richard floyd mccoy richard floyd mccoy um the weird things about this dude is that where he so the 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 the, pro, the, the issue with the with the FBI scene with this guy is that where he was at the time is kind of weird. Um, during that day, he can't really put a solid evidence. There's some weird shit which is pulled up that these thousand suspects they have. It's shocking how many weird things people do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Richard Fuller McCoy has a really good example of that he. Uh, uh, on the 23rd again, this happened on the 24th. So day before. He put gas, filled up a, a car with gas in Cedar City, Nevada. Cedar City? Yep. He filled his car uh, in Cedar City um, with gas. several hours under his home to route in Las Vegas. So he's, he lives above Las Vegas, like four hours north of, of Las Vegas. And yeah, he so filled north. his car several hours south of there and then placed a collect call from Las Vegas to his house. Um, and at that point, they don't really know what happened, but like he drove to Las Vegas and made a call to his house. No one knows why. It's in Cedar City. Uh, no, it's north of Cedar City. So it's it's just a weird situation. And he wasn't, what? Why is it weird? So far, what I know is this man filled up a tank of gas and called his house. Is he far from his home? What I'm saying is that it just, uh, he is, he's like four or five hours south of his home. Oh, okay. I understand now. Yeah, that, that's very odd to be that. Yeah, far he's away. kind of far, and he can't really line up what he was doing there. He won't say what, why he was in Las Vegas, why he made a call to his house, um, that type of thing. Um, and then he couldn't explain the gas near Vegas or the charges from the hotel. Um, mm-hmm. And then he said that he spent Thanksgiving when they asked him, "Well, where were you on the 24th?" He said, "He said, well, I spent Thanksgiving home with my wife, and I even helped her make dinner." Uh, and then wow. they, they said, um, okay. No more questions. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Great. You were clearly home with your wife, and his wife vouched for him, and that's yeah. how he got off the hook. But he did go to jail for a 45 year sentence for the hijacking in LA. Uh, right. Escaped after only a few months, got in a shootout yeah, police, well, and died. slowed down there because that is a great part of the story, too. The man was arrested for the hijacking, much like every other hijacker we've mentioned. But he broke out of prison after being sentenced to 45 years in prison. Yep. He broke he out broke of prison. Out with three other dudes. Yeah, he, uh, after taking the commissary, I believe, a toothpaste and other parts of his uh, items and fashioning a fake handgun and using it to threaten his way out of prison, he successfully escapes the prison using a toothpaste gun he made. And now... Even really? though all these things about the age of him and different aspects like that seem to not light up a D.B. Cooper. From what I know about D.B. Cooper, that sounds like a pretty D.B. Cooper way to break out of prison. Make a fake handgun out of toothpaste and work your way out. That seems coopery to me. Seems coopery to me. Um, and the thing is, we'll never know if it's him uh, unless we posthumously dig him up and get his DNA, which I think is fine. Ultimately, what happened to him? What? What happened to him ultimately? After he broke, uh, he broke out of prison and uh, got in a shootout with the cops, and uh, he was shot and uh, slipped on a banana and died. <laughs> yeah, he <bumped> himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he fell, fell, oh, yeah, yeah, he and fell. Also, and... 
I think the FBI agent who was, uh, this is what gives more credence to him being uh, possibly Cooper is that the lead agent on the investigation at the time when they were taking this person McCoy down, he believed wholeheartedly that he was looking at DB Cooper when he's looking at this man. And he believed that he good could, quote. It's a quote. Said, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the day that they shot DB Cooper, I mean, the day that they shot McCoy, they shot Cooper as well. He believed that that was Cooper. He believed it was him. It doesn't, it doesn't say bar none that that was Cooper because of all the discrepancies we've mentioned before and how he seemed to be handling it a lot more sloppy than uh, Cooper did. Not to say that you couldn't get sloppier over a year after you pulled off a crime the first time, but uh, some of his tendencies seemed a little bit uh, different than Cooper, but a lot of them seemed the same. I mean, he's, he was cunning. He was able to pull off a similar crime in, in almost the same fashion. And like you said, unfortunately, we if that was Cooper, we will never know because he's been dead for uh, a, um, a long time now, almost a long years, time, 48 yeah. years, because we're 49 years away from the uh, the original Cooper hijacking, which is the day before Thanksgiving. Which Crazy is town right now. Yeah. Almost a half century. So, Joe, so I've got I've got one more guy and you've got one more guy. What do you got? That's right. Uh, so the last one that I have, which is. Um, I would think that it is around the same level as Dwayne Weber in my mind, as far as the, the shining examples that, are, that they speak the loudest and they, they tell the best story that White Maya might be like D.B. Cooper, but the evidence falls apart right away because it looks into taking the conclusion and trying to add on evidence afterwards. And also the part of, you know, the D.B. Cooper case that we didn't mention with all of the calls, which is that People like fame. People want to be famous. They want to say, I knew the guy. Many books were written on this person, D.B. Cooper, and almost every book that was a great seller accuses a different person of being D.B. Cooper. I knew him. I was best friends with him. He told me he was in the Assad. He was in the CIA. All these things. All the stories are fantastic and, and wild, but they're all self-serving, ultimately. If they're not, they can't all be telling the truth because they're all telling someone else. And this person uh, came out- Is there a grudge? There's not a there's not a grudge in this story. No, there's not a grudge in this one. Um, uh, the the height, the age, and uh, the eye color match up. Uh, the dates match up because it's the night before Thanksgiving in 1971. Um, and the name matches up, which is also part of the reason why you might think, well, why does the name match yeah. up? Because we we have already established there's no particular reason why you need to go by DB Cooper when you're hijacking a plane. The kind of person who unfortunately left behind his tie and some cigarette butts didn't leave behind any other evidence whatsoever. Even like you said, taking the note back in his pocket, making sure that he was hiding any form of his identification, even not being seen by any outside sources. Seems odd that he would put his last name on the boarding pass, which is the first thing the authorities went and looked for when they went to arrest the guy. Like you said, they arrested Dan Cooper within a week just because his name was Dan Cooper. So if you're D.B. Cooper, why is that your name? Either way, a woman came out about three years ago. She had an interview on ABC where she claimed that her uncle was D.B. Cooper. She says that uh, growing up, uh, she was pretty young at the time. She was eight years old when this event happened, where I'm already getting suspect here because that was an eight-year-old telling me a story that happened that long ago, and she didn't come out with <laughs> recently. A lot. Yeah. But she says that her uncle is named Lynn Doyle Cooper, um, her father uh, was always sketchy about what, what her uncle was doing. Her uncle was always in and out of her life. And later in his life, he used to say that her uncle was on the run by the FBI and that she shouldn't be talking about her uncle to other people, which 
to me, doesn't reek of being inaccurate. There's a lot of families who have a lot of family members who are in trouble by the law. And it's, it's not simply <laughs> a question that you would tell people that. It doesn't necessarily correlate to being D.B. Cooper. I'm sure her uncle might have been on the run for the FBI. It's very possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that uh, her uncle at some point did tell the family that he was D.B. Cooper and that her father was part of covering it up. On the night of Thanksgiving Eve, her uncle and her father left. Her uncle came back. Her uncle did not uh, return until the day of Thanksgiving, and he looked completely disheveled. He was badly injured, and he told the family that he was um, in a car accident the previous night. Uh, their, their family came into a lot of money at that point, and to me, this seems much like circumstantial evidence, even though this could have all been true, even though it might be outside of the idea of an eight-year-old. There's no reason why her uncle didn't go and get into some trouble and make some money for the family. It doesn't mean he's D.B. Cooper, just because his last name is Cooper. Even if all, everything she said is true, it doesn't pin him at the time of doing that. And I absolutely can't imagine that D.B. Cooper could make it in time for Thanksgiving Day the next day for some kind of weird twisted alibi, jumping out of a plane and saying, oh, it couldn't have been me. I was at Thanksgiving dinner with a gash in my head and a broken knee. Couldn't have been me. Seems odd. Either way, she did give her uh, uncle's guitar shop the FBI in order to fingerprint test and even though she is fully convinced that her uncle is D.B. Cooper and that uh, she is on to something and she felt she needed to come clean, the FBI couldn't take any evidence off of that guitar strap. And even though her last name is Cooper, seems suspect to me. Another one bites the dust in my mind. I'm not sure about you. And where was the location of that? I believe they lived in Oregon. Her uncle also was a a lumberjack in Northern Oregon. So she was saying that he might've been familiar with the the woods and more rugged than someone who was not familiar with working in the forests, which kind of added to it. He also was a former military man, which adds to the D.B. Cooper uh, lineup that we have here. Those are the most convincing arguments, but most of what I heard her say seems to be that she, like I said, she found what she wanted to say and she picked the evidence that went along with it. She was eight years old, but like... uh... That's there's there's a lot of good a, a good firsthand witness to something that happened that was weird at the time with an uncle. Um, yeah, I, I believe that even if she was maybe off about it, it's very possible her uncle was in some definitely a strange event that night. It could have been illegal, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations could have been after him. It does not connect him directly to the events of the I'm sure a lot of people that night committed a lot of fun and they didn't want to tell their family about it. Right. And the thing is, we haven't mentioned is that the uh, Freedom of Freedom of Information Act, which came out uh, after 9-11, has uh, given the public access to so much information. 9-11 was a huge part of why you're not allowed to hijack planes anymore. I mean, up until 2001, you could still carry a four inch blade on a plane legally. And although we have metal detectors, we don't have the scanning systems we do now that are basically x-rays that show your entire naked body. You put your hands above your head. I mean, these are the kind of instances that have happened in security with planes right right exactly that's a good point so but but my whole point with the freedom freedom of information act is that um this is why all the tv shows all the books all these these things are coming out uh the past couple years about like aliens ufos other other things um is because uh as u.s citizens i forget who put that that act into place it might have been george bush or obama but now we have access to these documents from the government saying what happened when. Um, and I would, 
I don't trust anybody, but I would say that if they didn't pull up this this Mr. Cooper guy as a potential suspect on the FBI's radar, that was like top on their list. These people, I mean, they're they're imagine working for the FBI. You devote your you are now an FBI agent. You devote your life to this. If they don't think it's this guy, and they take into all the, the all the things that we are taking into take into effect, yes, or into account. Yeah. It's probably not. You have to maybe sort of trust that a little bit. Again, we should highlight that fact that everything that we've gone over here and everyone, whether it's the niece of L.D. Cooper or any of these people or the wife of Dwayne Weber, don't think the FBI hasn't looked into it. They've looked into all these people and they have to take right. every lead seriously. And they've discounted it, not because they're lazy or don't believe you. It's the fact that they there's their job to look into it. And just because yeah. you think it doesn't make it true. And I think that as soon as they discredited L.D. Cooper, it wasn't because they didn't want to listen to her and they didn't believe that her story when she was eight year old and her uncle came home all fucked up one time meant that he was D.B. Cooper. It's because they looked into it. They want to find this guy. I mean, yeah, they, it is yeah exactly. They went on FBI that they couldn't find D.B. Cooper. I mean, it, it is a sour spot in their record that they couldn't stop every hijacker and that he's some kind of mythic you know, idea now about the guy who got away with it. it. They don't, they don't want that to happen. That's why they sent an SR-71 out, I think, to go find the guy because they wanted him found. They really? didn't want to say, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to brush it all under the rug. Maybe you think otherwise, but I think that they wanted to do everything they could to find this guy and they weren't able to, and they couldn't just chase, you know, weak sources all day because there was, like I said, there's thousands of sources that were claiming all kinds of things. So exactly. And, 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 no, totally. And and uh, at the time, J. Edgar Hoover was still the, the head of the FBI. Sure, um, yep. And he obviously, I mean, he's somebody who wanted to look good, and this would be a good win for him. So that brings us one. to our, our last guy. Yes. Our last guy who likely had a grudge, who um, was qualified, who had an anger issue, um, and who... Uh, well, that's not one of our... That's not one of our criteria because we, didn't, we don't have any evidence that D.B. Cooper was an angry and outward aggressive person. That's a great point, Joe. Two of those are big time, though. Did he have any uh, yeah. uh, military experience or uh, parachuting experience? Uh, he did. He was in the Marines of this instance. So this guy's name uh, is he was a Boeing employee and he specifically was 45 years old at the time of the skyjacking. He was a skydiver and he quote unquote, literally worked in the department that wrote the manual for the 727, which to me uh, means this is nothing. Interesting because that is my last point we have coming up here is the idea that a Boeing employee could have been involved in this. Yes, because at the time there were thousands of people laid off from Boeing in 71. Interesting. Yes, that's a fact. Um, the maker of the plane, in case we have lost track of that, the Boeing 727 is the model of plane, which is in both of these hijackings, and particularly the D.B. Cooper one. Sheridan Peterson is, we don't know if this is the guy, but he was 45 years old at the time, a Boeing employee, and he had a grudge. And his grudge was Vietnam, because... Okay. Um, because he was, uh, as mentioned, a, a Marine in previous wars. But during gotcha. Vietnam, uh, he worked, uh, he was a humanitarian person. So he went to Southeast Asia to uh, learn from and help uh, rebuild Southeast Asia during and after the war. Yeah. Um, so specifically, uh, his motive was that he, the layoffs of Boeing, 
and and or that he was radicalized by working with locals in Southeast Asia about the the horrors of Vietnam. You see the um, impact on the ground. Yeah. So again, not enough to make you say that's him, but enough to say, well, he had a motive for this. Um, uh, so so what this guy was about is that he the last we knew he was interviewed this year or like early this year or in 2019. And before that, he had the same agent interview him in 2003. Yep. Um, and the reason they think it's him is because his background fits pretty pretty well. Um, and Can they talk him around that time period, whether he made money afterwards or? Uh, uh, good good question. Um, the only the reason why they thought was Kenneth earlier is because he ended up buying a house immediately after D.B. Cooper's hijacking. So even though we discredited Kenneth earlier, a lot of those aftermath parts of it are why people started to point their fingers at things. I don't know if this person had any um, red flags after that or not. So yeah, it's, there's a few. So um, he had a he had a ex-wife, his first wife at the time, um, who he left around the he, he left around that time, who's not dead yet. Um, yep. And she, uh, that's that. And then he moved to Southeast Asia and he married somebody from, from one of the countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, and at the time, he needed money to get to Southeast Asia. Gotcha. To do that. But again, $20 flights, how, we could still, we got to steal this much money to do that. Yeah. A little we're weird. talking today, was it like probably $500 for a flight there? And then uh, we're talking about yeah, one, to, today's money. That's a lot of cash. Yeah. And his, his ex-wife said that he had grudges, but he wasn't, he wasn't somebody who was obsessed with money or who needed like a whole ton of it. So a mm -hmm. little weird. Um, but he, um, in August of 1971, he has all of his passports and he gave them to the FBI. Um, okay. And in 1971, in August, he went to Kathmandu. Okay. And then from there, there's a gap in his passport, which could be from the US, but he uh, from there went back to Vietnam, um, according to him. But yeah. the only reason they think it's him um, is because he lines up at the age, his, his, uh, his, his height, his looks, he does look similar to him. Fits the all profile. line up he fits the profile he confidently says stuff that makes you think this guy knows something specifically like uh he knew the reserve parachute was daisy chains at issaquah airport where, where he worked so he's a former employee of boeing and issaquah airport where they packed the parachutes that were given both of that yeah, that, both of those are involved in that. Yeah, that were given to him. Um, and he knew that they put a red X on the reserve parachute. He already knew that. Uh, the reason why I, I had I had read um, in, in, in compounding with that guy, is I didn't know his particular name, but why I knew that that was a part of it was because there's a group of uh, independent investigators that are called Citizen Sleuth, which is basically the front line of deciding who D.B. Cooper is today because although the FBI has... Uh, sealed the investigation as, as unsolved. They're they're still taking information. If anyone has new information about it, much like why someone like you know Lynn Doyle's Cooper's niece can call them up and give them the right, right, right. Have, but specific, it's but, a criteria like specific evidence they'll take. They won't yeah, take like, oh, yeah. it's my uncle. They'll take. We found a parachute in the woods. Yeah, you need to have yeah. something. Yeah. And uh, so what this particular group did, because um, some of them are scientists, they have access to measurements and materials that average people won't get to get their hands on, they were able to uh, take the tie that was found on the, the plane that assumed that that tie you were talking about with the clip on, 
and they're able to put it under an electron microscope. And if you can put something under an electron microscope, it is as close as we can zoom into viewing something as we have right now with modern science. Anything smaller than that is completely uh, mathematic equations. So what we understand about subatomic particles and you know pieces of an atom, we, we understand them to exist because of the math we can do and the tests we can run, but we can't actually look at them because an electron microscope is bouncing electrons, which are part of an atom, off of something, almost like you'd see radar. You bounce it back, what you see back, that's what you get there. So you can't shoot a particle at something smaller than itself and have it bounce back. It, you're not going to find it. If you throw a basketball at a mosquito and hope it comes back, you're not going to ever find the mosquito. So that's almost as small as we can see now. But they found by going through that, you can, you can isolate different elements because of how small you can look at. Mm -hmm. And they found some elements that were uh, heavy metal elements, and they were particularly rare in 1971. Mm. They're still data fine, but there's a lot more access to materials and a lot more corporations. And our technology now, even in our phones, uses a lot more precious metals than we'd ever had access to in 1970. But what they found was cesium, strontium sulfide, and titanium, which are all rare elements and were very difficult to find anywhere in the world in 1971, and particularly from your average Joe with a tie on. And that is one of the ways they, they directly correlated him to being a Boeing employee because one of the only companies at that time in America to have access to those materials was Boeing which is very close mm -hmm. to Seattle and Portland. Yeah. And if he was a, a uh, employee of Boeing, he would have the debris from the factory floor that could have soaked into his tie. Obviously he didn't have big smudges of titanium. You need an electron microscope to see this, but you can identify these elements. And anyone living in America at the time, there's no reason they'd ever come into contact with cesium and titanium. And titanium elements. and cesium, yeah. Totally rare. Yeah, so that, that kind of adds to the uh, idea that this person might have been a member of Boeing. Not only did he have a, um, very good knowledge about the ins and outs of a plane, but he has titanium and cesium on his side. That's pretty uh, mm. pretty interesting, I think. Very interesting. So this guy, uh, last I checked, isn't dead yet. Um, but the FBI agent who was assigned to the case in 2003 went back there in 2020 and said, hey, we're thinking before this person dies, they want to convince. And, and his... <clears throat> the way he speaks, you, you see this guy and the way he speaks about things just strikes. Mm -hmm. I don't trust that guy. You know, you meet very, actually, weirdly enough, you don't, you meet very few people in your life. I'm very trusting who you just get a gut instinct that I don't really believe this guy or like, like, but not because he's blatantly so, like uh, oblivious, like flamboyant, untrustworthy person. We've Nothing all met them. Um, just because like he's, he seems very sophisticated, but I feel like something's not right. And that's how I felt when I saw the interview with this guy. I just said, uh, you know, he said he said things like, oh, it was a fake bomb. And they said, and the FBI just said, we don't know that. He said, well, yeah, they found, the FBI proved that. And he, then the FBI agent said, actually, are, there's no proof. Yeah, yeah there's no proof there's a fake bomb. Yeah, that's yeah. completely not true at all. Like, there's actually no proof that it was a fake bomb. Like, she just says, he says things, he's getting older, that say, one, he's either getting old and he's messed up, he's just getting old. Or, hey, he's slipping. Um, yeah. So it's about this trying. guy, yeah, we really don't know. Um, so, sure. so for me... I before, but I'm sure there is still, still, even as a case that old, law enforcement always likes to hold on to some specific pieces of evidence that are so damning, they don't like the public to know them because it'll sully the pool in general. A lot of times when people 
commit murders or heinous crimes, they'll keep certain pieces of evidence to themselves and they'll release a lot of it to the public to say, if you know anything about a white mm. car this time, this period, and they'll release it out there and they'll hold in the fact that there was a jump rope involved or something that's as you know menial as that. And if someone yes. brings up the idea that there's a jump rope, they immediately know, hey, this person's not fucking around. They know something that we, we only know. No one else knows this. So I wouldn't it's doubt great that tactic, yeah. still has some evidence <clears throat> of the deep super hijacking that even the that general public is not aware of even now. Because if they ever hear anything about that, they'll immediately know this is to be taken seriously. And as soon as they give that up, they've already given up more than they already have, which is they're letting everyone know everything. And then the pool gets all muddied. And now we have people calling up saying, my stepdad said he flew a plane once. So he's DB Cooper. Yep. No, I, I, I think that's awesome. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, that's what I would do with like a kid to like, hey, did you, hey, what did you use to cut down those plants? Yeah, don't tell them everything. Or, hey, hey, I found this. Is, yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you give them, yeah, then you let them confess to yeah. something that you tricked them into. Right. Um, so, you know what me and you know about this after our research and all the people who are involved in it, there could still be pieces of evidence that are damning that we are not aware of, but the, the FBI hasn't been able to tie into any particular individual. I, I'm just guessing that probably is the case. It's the case a lot of the time. Exactly. So, the, the thing with, against, against Peterson, against Sheridan Peterson, is that they didn't take his DNA. They took his DNA in 2003, but they didn't use it because of like legal things. They took his daughter's yeah. DNA because she said, hey, sure, why not? Uh, it's my father. Fuck it. It's my, mm. my father, who's my, his second wife, uh, who apparently, he said, died in 1977, 1977, but he told his ex-wife she was still alive in 2007. That's he just has all these mix-ups. Um, so, so here's my thing. Yeah, he, she is. If he took $200,000 with him to Southeast Asia, yeah, you know, and spent it there or, or exchange it there, I mean, who knows what happened to it. So, um, yeah, so... Uh, I'm guessing he probably didn't put his new boarding pass to Southeast Asia as Dan Cooper, though. He might have changed his name. I'm guessing not. Yeah, that's probably a good point. This is something he said. So... There was also an 18-knot wind, which is probably about 20 miles an hour. Um, mm -hmm. The old knot thing is about pulling in ropes from the anchor, and each knot yeah. is a its a weird thing. Um, That's 18 uh, knots on top of the, the movement speed of the airplane, too. So that's just an increased wind, right? Yes. Yes, 18 knots so would be an increase. So if you're, if, you're running, yeah. if you're running into 18 knots and you're running two miles an hour... Mm -hmm. um or two knots an hour <laughs> whatever the fuck yeah that, that's um, 20 knots away uh, it feels like you're running 20 knots as opposed to zero yeah. or two because exactly. it's like yeah so like your air it's your airspeed versus your land speed um gotcha. and this is what this guy said sheridan uh sheridan uh what's his last name i'm not sure sheridan is his first name which is why it's confusing me peterson mm -hmm. he said Based off of, of the whole situation, um, he said, there was also an 18-knot wind. Not being a skydiver, he probably opened the chute immediately. And at 10,000 feet, the wind would have carried him possibly 30 miles out over the Columbia River. I'm assuming that there would be a downdraft over the river sucking him into the water, Peterson said. But... Asked in the FBI interview whether he would have survived the jump. Peterson, Peterson replied, absolutely. 
So mm. the search area was wrong, is what he's telling them. The search yeah. area should have been over Bachelor Island, which is several miles north of Tina Bar, which is where the money was found. So mm. let's say it's three or four or five miles north of Tina Bar. He landed up there, walked down there, buried the money, kept walking, or whatever it is. Um, yeah. We think that, so that's what this guy thinks could be. So this guy could be, he has all the evidence based off of his appearance, his age. Uh, but uh, so, so who's, so I think the evidence uh, lines up to be Sheridan Peterson mm. or Robert Rackshaw. What do you think? So we're going to talk about here is just our final thoughts on who we think D.B. Cooper actually could be and what we think you know, happened to him afterwards. Obviously, if the FBI could have convicted someone by now, they would have definitely gone forward with it. And if they had a suspect with enough evidence, they would have gone forward with it. Because we already said that they wanted to catch this guy and they put a lot of effort forward to do it. Unfortunately, at the time of the crime, uh, sky piracy is what they're going to convict him for, which I think sounds like an awesome like fantasy wild crime. Not something you'd be convicted with. But uh, at the time, within a five-year period after the crime of sky piracy, which I'm admitting was probably a new crime, I'm sure before the Wright brothers didn't have a lot of sky piracy going on. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I would think it was probably a newer crime. After five years, you couldn't be convicted with that crime. But they had a secondary crime which had to do with extortion and extortion of large um, basis of governments and things like that. I don't know the exact term for it, but what it happened to be is that now they can convict him for life. If you are using your power to hold hostages and extort people for money, there's no limit on how long they can charge you with that. So they're, so even today, if they found evidence for Cooper, they could convict him tomorrow. So what me and Dylan are going to do right now is we're going to wrap this thing up and say what we think happened to D.B. Cooper, who we think he might be, and maybe even... Is there a day in the future where we could see justice for this crime or will he forever be the mythical figure of the one who got away, the, the one who is the, the only, only hijacker, the only hijacker of a plane that ever has been? And to my probably will be. Yeah, to my knowledge, I think it would probably ever be because now it's harder than ever to ever get away with things. So it seems like he might be the, the unicorn in that degree. Do you want to start mm. off, Dylan, by, by saying who you, who you think it, it might be or do you want to have me go? Yeah, I do. I do want to start off and saying who I think it might be. Let's hear it, because I think we're saying it's how we rounded out the last conversation, which is out of our top suspects that we found. So I've got, so suspect number two is Robert Rackstraw, and there is only one thing against him at this time, and it's that the fact that he was 28 years old. Sp right. Suspect number one for me is uh, who we've recently talked about being Sheridan Peterson, 45 years old, skydiver, Boeing employee uh, who had a grudge with Vietnam and Boeing layoffs. He hits a lot of the points that we were saying. He, he hits him and he's a known liar. And known liar, yeah. Closest to Cooper as far as our profile goes. And he worked for the company that packed the, packed the parachutes that he jumped with. In addition to being a Boeing employee. And he has he has been wishy-washy on the knowledge that he has about these things. Like they've, the FBI specifically has caught him in lies since 2003. He said one thing in 2003, another thing in 2020. That's interesting. He's also old as fuck, and that could be a serious reason why he doesn't know his shit. 
Yeah. He could grab yeah. his wife on his deathbed and say, I was Stevie Cooper. Just so you know. And he could. The other guy exactly. did. Which wife? <laughs> the FBI has <laughs> How have they looked into him? I mean, as far as we're concerned, obviously we're no experts on it. And like we said earlier, the FBI has looked into this extensively. So it's not like we're going to find anything new here. He lines up almost perfectly. Works for Boeing. Is found in the tie. He has knowledge of being a skydiver. He has a grudge against the U.S. government and maybe even, you know, major military industrial corporations like Boeing. And he's been on the ground. And he, 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 like we said the quote was, I don't have a grudge against the Northwest Orient Airlines. I have a grudge. So he seems mm-hmm. to fit not only the physical description, but also the profile. Uh, why do you think that he hasn't been the number one suspect the whole time. They must have discredited him at some point, if not in 2003, mm, good point. then in yeah. 1972. Do you have any reason you, you could believe that he hasn't been the prime suspect that they would want to bring to court? Or they just they don't think they can convict the guy? I don't have any good reason. I don't think I know enough about uh, about it to say why they didn't bring him to court off the bat. The one thing I do know is that they tested the DNA off the cigarette butts or off of the tie to you one gotta, of the daughters. I mean, the cigarette butts is like, that's like gold. And nowadays, gold. you'd be post. But in 71, you know, DNA evidence didn't exist back then. So you have, you're hoping you have enough DNA to pull off the cigarettes, you know, until the late 90s when DNA became popular to still mm-hmm. be able to do a profile on that and take his daughter's DNA, like you said. So here's the like, thing is we know, uh, so, so the, the, the DNA, the company that did it, um, that has the DNA profile, has the DNA profile of D.B. Cooper. They have it. It's they have, okay. So there is they have it. a profile we can match up with if we can find that DNA. Yes, can... if you find that, and then you have to, to be able to, to match that DNA profile to a database of, of, of people, you have to have a court order, which they can't get because the case is closed. Um, gotcha. But they do have a DNA profile of this this uh, Sheridan Peterson's daughter, and it's not a match. Really? You would yes. think it would be at least close enough to match up to, to the Cooper profile. If you have someone's daughter and you have your own, you know, drool on your tie, it should mm-hmm. match, and they, it doesn't yeah. match. I mean, famously, a couple of years back, the Golden State Killer was caught in just that, that manner, where his niece. Did a 23andMe. They took her DNA evidence and the FBI used that to match up with the Golden State Killer. They had his DNA from decades back and they were able to mm-hmm. convict him of being the Golden State Killer that long way. And that's not even his daughter, that's his niece, which means that he has yeah. he shared some DNA with her. But the way the DNA works, if you're a family member, it is an almost exact match. The only time where yeah. it comes into question is when you're trying to differentiate between multiple family members. If you're differentiating between a family member and a stranger, it's going to be like night and day. You will yep. match up and they will not. You and your brother, you and your sister, that's difficult because now you're doing a matter of degrees. But you versus me, they'll be able to tell it's us immediately. Just no, by problem. no problem. Mm-hmm. So you would think that his blood-related daughter would have enough of a match to match it up with Cooper's profile. But maybe that's why FBI didn't go forward because they think DNA is a big part of it and it'll be tough to prove without DNA this far into the future because all of the people who could be witnesses that could testify are uh, either uh, passed away or they are, don't have the, uh, the knowledge this far away from them. Fact. Exactly. So that, so that brings us, that brings us to, uh, to Robert Rackstraw, who 
which if Robert Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper, um, it sort of makes it think you make, make this is the guy who um, was 28. He was a con abuser, check forger, thief, potentially murderer. The um, first guy we brought up. This is the the first guy we talk about who also um, took on side missions with the CIA in Vietnam. This would make you think that maybe there's a CIA involvement, which, but the thing is, what do they have to benefit from this? Yeah, Nothing. from what I heard of him being like, involved in CIA, there's really no evidence to prove that besides the man who wrote the book about him. I don't think there's really a lot of hard evidence that he was part of the CIA. I mean, he's a habitual right. liar. He lied about his rank. He, he Most people believe he was in Vietnam, but a lot of what he said, especially being a member of the CIA or any kind of, um, you know, special agencies, I, I can't imagine that's anything beyond a, him being more grandiose about who he was. Even if he did say right, that, I, right. I don't believe him. He's a, he's a liar. He's a liar. And yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I work with the CIA in Vietnam. Yeah, okay, great. That's all. Awesome. Like, that. Why did they Why did they care about you? They probably didn't. So, um, so it's it's still likely that it was him but i also feel like to to execute such a perfect mission like that you can't be that much of a dirtbag you know you got to kind of be a normal guy who's able to pull it off level-headedly and not be a piece of shit you know so well, is it know. him being a dirtbag is part of being manipulative and even though he was a he was a bad guy i don't think that completely mm. bars you from being able to pull that off i mean a lot of the people who are the best criminals of all time uh were really they seem kind and charming to people. I mean, the BTK killer, for instance, was a Boy mm. Scout leader who was a member of his community. His family loved him, <laughs> loved him. And meanwhile, yep. he was tying up families and torturing them to death. But it, it doesn't mean that just because you seem like a good guy, you can't commit the crime. I mean, yeah, Ted Bundy. Yeah. If anything, it seems that if you're incapable of being charming and acting normal, you're actually least less likely to be able to pull it off because you're so sporadic and you can't handle your own shit that you wouldn't be able to pull off something like that. To me, someone would have to be a lot more cold and calculated whether or not this person was so expertly aware of what he had to pull off and was able to do it like a military man and just said, this is just how it goes. Or they're such a sociopath and so disjointed from society that they're able to do it similarly. I think it would either take someone who is so well-trained and well-versed and understands this is how you accomplish a task, no matter how hard it is, I'm a trained at this, or I'm so separate from how humans usually interact. I'm able to step outside of it and act a certain way in the situation that makes people feel comfortable. But actually, I'm not like a normal person at all. A normal person would not be able to handle this, handle this at all. Like I said earlier, people would be freaking out robbing a bank, and this guy went into robbing the United States <laughs> by sitting with an airplane in an airplane with a fake bomb, and he was cool as a cucumber mm. by all accounts. Yeah, it's a good point. That's somebody who's ex who's experienced something that is very far from reality and, and able to keep keep calm uh, at that. So yeah, that, that's a really good point. So so for me, I mean, Sheridan Peterson, just because he is a known sociopath, he was he fits he fits the bill. I kind of think that if I were to give a bet on something, I would say it was him. What do you think? As far as far as what I think. Um, I'm glad you went first because yours is much more interesting. My thoughts on it, not to be a, a complete you know, downer, which I feel like I'm going to be quickly becoming to this podcast. I believe, <laughs> that, yeah, I know I'm the asshole skeptic about everything. Uh, what I think uh, happened with D.B. Cooper, as far as I'm concerned, is that- Alien? He's an alien. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Problem solved. Have a good day, everybody. M and Jesus, we're both Don't Joe podcast. Don't Joe basement podcast. Have a good one. I I believe that whether or not DB Cooper um, survived afterwards is tough to say, but uh, just, yeah. as far as what I believe, this is what I think about based on what I've found out from looking into it. I think that he made it out of the plane. I think that he was, he was definitely had planned this beforehand. It wasn't a spur of the moment thing. Any evidence that shows that he might've been making mistakes along the way. I can kind of attribute that either to it being, you, you know, no mission goes correctly. I mean, anyone in the military knows that the, you always have to leave room for mistakes and things are going to go haywire and that's just part of it. And mm-hmm. I think that he had it all planned out. And unfortunately he took a huge risk in what he was accomplishing there. And someone like Richard McCoy might've pulled this off, like, which he did, but he was caught soon afterward. And the mm-hmm. difference is, here's where, here's where it loses me. I think that Cooper wanted to leave it up to chance whether he's going to make it or not. Because if you are doing something where people assume you're dead, it's much more likely you can get away with it because people are already going to assume you're dead. They didn't assume McCoy was dead and they found him and that was that. I don't think that's the same person because even though they pulled off a similar crime, one of them was found. And I think that if Cooper did a, a similar thing to what McCoy did and landed in the desert, they would have found the parachute or his body. They would have found the money. It would have been easier to land. And then he's traceable and they find him. I think what happened to D.B. Cooper is that he planned uh, to do this risky thing and to be somewhere where he was difficult to find. He didn't want to land in the middle of a desert if you could find him for 10 miles mm. walking with a helicopter. He wanted to be lost in the woods. And I think that he mm-hmm. probably bet that either I'm going to survive this and I'm going to make off with the money or I'm going to die. And that'll be that. But I don't want it to be so a good easy risk. to find him mm-hmm. chance. But what I actually think happened to him is that he jumped out of that airplane, he hit the woods of the Pacific Northwest, and he died in the woods. And they never found him or the parachute. And whatever money they found, I mean, who, who knows if that, if that money was, I mean, separated. I mean, he had $200,000 in the case. They found 5800 I mean, $5, I don't know why that couldn't be people finding the money in the woods. I mean, there's no chance people couldn't have found the money and distributed it other way. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, but as far as I'm concerned, no, there is, there's a really good point. Find, if you can't find a parachute and you can't find the guy, it's hard for me to say that, that and he, he could have made it out. Okay. I mean, there's nothing that says to me that the parachute and his skeleton couldn't still be there in the woods somewhere. We haven't found it yet. It seems unlikely that he would pack up a parachute after that insane mission in a tree and hide it away along with the money. And if he did make it out alive. I think he pulled off the perfect crime because people assume he's dead and I'm one of them. So I'm impressed is all I'm saying. I don't think it was one we said tonight. I think it was either someone who has passed away and they didn't look at obituaries at the time for people who have lost their husbands or family members or whoever, who who is dead. They're not trying to arrest a dead man. They're looking for a live person who got away or he got away. We didn't realize it. That's my thought. So I think you're onto something and to support your, your theses on this. Uh, do you know what's 20, <clears throat> 25 or 30 miles uh, northeast of Portland? I, I don't think it's Seattle. I think it's too far away, but I'm not sure. It is too far away. It's this, this particular object is halfway between Portland and Tacoma. And it's Mount, Saint, it's Mount St. Helens. 
Mm. And Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. Interesting. So yeah. if he went off course um, in between that journey and uh, died, and his parachute died, and his money died, uh, and Mount St. Helens erupted eight years later, it's all gone. You couldn't ask for a better cover-up than that. Nope. In a, of a mountain, the biggest eruption of a volcano in America since recorded history that we know of. So that's huge. Yeah. For me, I like to give some sort of hope that maybe it's one of the guys I think of who did pull it off and then get away with it. Just like the three people who I think got away with Alcatraz. Um, yeah. I, mean, I like to think that too, but it's what we said before in the last episode. His conditions I, are wild. Yes. Yeah. And like I said, I, I like the story of it. And that's why I like talking to you about things like this. That the, the, like I said, the mystique, the the like the, the gravitas of this guy got away with this awesome heist. No one was hurt besides psychologically. He didn't kill anybody. He he got away mm -hmm. with it. He, he pulled off the perfect plan. Everyone dreams about you know fantasizing that you're going to pull off a bank heist and get away with it and things like that. It, it's it's like a Robin Hood of America. It's a, it's a mythological mythological figure. It's awesome. But I always think that it's dangerous. Like I said in the last episode, to assume something's true just because it's fun and interesting. And just because right. I want DB Cooper to get away with it doesn't mean he did. And I don't think he did, unfortunately. Yep. We'll wrap it up now. Guys, it could have been Robert Rackstraw, Kenneth Christensen, uh, or Sheridan Peterson, the Boeing employee, or whoever it was is probably dead somewhere in the forest. And then Mount St. Heavens blew up and covered them and buried them, and we'll never know. Either way, what an interesting story. D.B. Cooper, I'm glad we talked about it. I mean, what a wild tale. Um, I hope everyone knows about it if you don't already hear about it already. It's just such a fun uh, story to talk about and interesting. And it, it's like most things that are interesting. It's hard to get to the bottom of it. And maybe we'll never know. And maybe that's okay. It's hard. We'll never know. And it's one of the, and it's, it specifically hits a, uh, uh, what's the word? Not milestone, but hits a certain, a certain level of, of, uh, classifications to things that have happened in the unknown uh, as far as unsolved mysteries go because it is the only skyjacking that has gone unsolved I mean, and we really and, and based off of and there's still not enough evidence to say that is definitely the person, yep. which is super, super rare and will never happen again. Yeah. Any, any, any mystery moving on forward? I mean, we have ring doorbells. We have all these other things going on. It's very odd to yeah, see. Some, again, I mean, hijacking is not a chance, but even small crimes. I mean, like, I'm not even worried about people breaking into things because I'm like, you're on video. Yeah. So it's, it's tougher and tougher. So the mysteries of the world are swallowed up as technology advances. And it's our job to talk about them while they still exist and try to posit the answer. And that's the yep. Joey Basement podcast. Thank you guys for listening to the second episode. I hope you can tune in for the rest of them. We got a bunch of shit coming up. It's going to be so much fun. We're much here. Like Stay tuned for episode number three. He was a cat burglar? Uh, does that mean you steal cats? <laughs>